when we go into the debate, you'll understand more clearly what we are defending. Because I think last week in the debate, it was kind of like, what are, we, what are we accomplishing in all this? Simply what we're accomplishing is we're showing you that the Bible makes sense. And it's a verifiable work, and you can learn from it, and it doesn't distract from learning science of any kind. So, uh, Mr. Riddle, I'm handing it over to you. Uh, take your liberty. You have an hour. Thank you, Joe. Um, I just uh, thank you for the opportunity to be here and the uh, opportunity to preach the uh, truth, the Word of God. And I'd like to talk about a particular topic that uh, is is dear to, I think, every Christian. It's called Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, right from the Bible. It's uh, human evolution. Did we evolve, or were we fearfully and wonderfully made, made in the image and likeness of God? And, in other words, it's going to deal with the, what do we really know about humans? Did they evolve, or were we created? And why is teaching about creation, uh, origin of humans, uh, important to the church? Why is that so important to the church? Well, the answer to that is most Christians attend public schools today. And in those public schools, what they're taught as a fact is that they evolved from some ape-like creature millions of years ago. Most Christians don't teach biblical. Most churches don't even teach about creation. Therefore, we have students who are in conflict all the time trying to reconcile the Bible with human evolution. So they end up compromising God's word, and we begin losing them. The, the rates are right now that 70% of our youth actually leave the church after high school. doesn't mean they, they're not a Christian anymore, but they stop attending church because they're so confused. They've been taught that the Bible's history is not true and it's not even relevant. So they begin abandoning what's happening in, in God's Word. They, begin, they abandon the authority of God's Word. Because, see, a belief in evolution actually elevates man's wisdom over God's Word. But God's Word says something very different. See, God's Word says that through death came one man. A belief in evolution changes all that. See, a belief in evolution says there were millions of years, billions of years even, of death before sin. Because if the earth is billions of years old, we have to ask ourselves the question, what was going on for those millions of billions of years before Adam and Eve came on board? The answer would have to be, Death, decay, and disease, because that's what the fossil record is. So right there, when they get taught this millions of years concept, they now have undermined the authority of God's word, even undermined the gospel. So that's one reason we need to be teaching where did we come from. Why should we be teaching creation? Because it affects our view on killing babies. It's called abortion. The medics know and the facts of science show clearly that human life begins at conception, fertilization there. Therefore, all the instructions at conception, at fertilization, all the instructions are there. No new instructions are added. So abortion is killing babies. So teaching evolution doesn't mean all evolutionists go for abortion, but that is the basic concept. The whole Planned Parenthood, one of their motivations is evolution. You go back 30 years, what was Planned Parenthood teaching? That the embryo inside the woman's womb was not really a full human being till the third trimester. Well, that's scientifically absurd. Everybody knows that today. That's not true. But that's what was being taught in the name of evolution. See, evolution affects our worldview and our belief about the nature of God. Because when we turn to the scriptures... Jesus says in Mark 10, verse 6, Mark 10, verse 6, Jesus Christ makes the statement, but from the beginning of the creation, 
God made them male and female. So right there, Jesus Christ makes the statement that man and woman were on this planet from the beginning of the creation. That leaves no room for evolution in millions of years. Or we abandon the words of Jesus. And if Jesus is wrong, then how can he be God? And if he's not God, then what was he really raised from the dead? And where is our faith then? You see, it all comes down to that, the authority of God's word. Where did we begin believing it? Now, I'd like to point out some things that have changed in our education system. The evolution worldview. When you go back to the early 90s, even the 80s, you used to open up these textbooks. And what you would see in these textbooks and also in magazines like National Geographic is the whole line of human evolution, the whole picture there of human evolution. You don't see those pictures anymore. The reason, one of the reasons we don't see those pictures anymore it was all we see now are maybe pictures of skulls or lines, but we don't see the full pictures. And I believe one of the reasons we don't see those pictures because they always show going from dark skin to light skin. And that promoted racism right there in our biology textbooks. So they've taken those pictures out. In other words, evolution is a racist-type philosophy. It's not that evolutionists are racist. I want to point that out. Not, evolutionists are not necessarily racist at all. Uh, evolutionists can be extremely moral people, they're, they're, and Christians can be very immoral. But uh, the concept, the philosophy of evolution is based on racism. And it's even uh, the evolution is taught as a fact in schools. I, I hear Christians saying, oh, it's not taught as a fact, it's taught as a theory. No, it's taught as a fact. Let me read this quote from you from a biology textbook by Miller and Levine. Quote, but all researchers agree on certain basic facts. Notice that there, the word all and facts. We know, for example, that humans evolved from ancestors we share with other living primates, such as chimpanzees and apes. In other words, what they are teaching right there is that humans are animals. And that's what we see in some of the modern museums today. The New Holland Human Origins just opened it in New York, showing humans are animals. But the Bible says something very different. The Bible clearly says we're not just animals. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are made in the image and likeness of God, and no other animal created was made that way, only humans. And the Bible says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That separates humans from all other creatures. We are not just animals. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. However, evolution thinking teaches just the opposite of that. Now what I'd like to dive into, now we've kind of laid a foundation for the importance of teaching this issue, is let's go to some of the facts of evolution, the, the claimed facts of evolution. The first one I'd like to start with is one evolutionists really don't like to bring out too much anymore because it's been pretty well settled, but it's Piltdown Man. Piltdown Man was discovered in 1920 in Piltdown, England, hence its name Piltdown. And it was claimed as a fact of evolution for over 40 years. Now, what did we actually find? What we found was a portion of a human skull and a portion of an ape-like jaw. And it was claimed to be about 500,000 years old. You know, it was claimed to be 500,000 years old before we even had radiometric dating and carbon-14 dating. Isn't that interesting how they could date it without any valid dating methods? 500,000 years old. Matter of fact, New York Times, one of those great newspapers ran an article at the time quoting, Darwin theory proved 
true. Wow. Featured in textbooks and encyclopedias. However, in 1953, scientists decided to study the bones again. After almost 40 years, they decided to study the bones, the real bones. And what they discovered was the whole thing was a fraud. Isn't that amazing? 40 years taught as a fact to support evolution, but it turned out to be a fraud. What they found out was the bones had been chemically stained to make them appear old, and the teeth had very clear file marks on them. And in fact, it wasn't 500,000 years old. It only turned out to be hundreds of years old. So there's a fact that was taught as evolution. And some evolutionists will say, well, science self-corrects itself. Well, that's not very self-correcting when it takes 40 years to see very plain fraud. Then we had a case of Nebraska man. Not everybody brought in Nebraska man, but it was found in 1922, and they attempted to use it in the 1925 Scopes trial, and it was claimed to be one million years old. Well, that turned out to be a big problem, too. Again, that was before we had radiometric dating or carbon-14 dating methods. It was one million years old. It turned out not to be one million years old. It turned out not to be anything to do with human evolution. It turns out to be a pig's tooth. So there was another one that was trying to be pawned off as a fact of evolution. Then we had another one, famous one called Ramapithecus, discovered in the 1930s. What did we find? We found portion of a jawbone and some teeth, and there they had the full picture of Ramapithecus right there in the textbooks. Now, one of the things I'd like to point out, when we find these fossils, what do we really find? We find a few bones. We don't find hair. We don't find eyeballs. We don't find noses. What ends up having to take place is an artistic license to draw these pictures and put them in textbooks. Ramapithecus was so strong for a while. However, in the 1970s, they had a problem. They found a baboon living in Ethiopia that had almost the exact same dental structure as Ramapithecus. This creature was still living. So Ramapithecus was dropped in 1970. However, let me show you how long it takes some of these organizations to drop false information. Time magazine in 1977 ran this article. Seven years after it was shown not to be true. I quote, Ramapithecus is ideally structured to be an ancestor of hominids. If it isn't, we don't have anything else that is. Well, that's a pretty blatant statement, seven years out of date. But that's what we have happening in our school systems. Sometimes it takes 10 or 20 years to get the correct science into the textbook. Matter of fact, in some of our textbooks, they're still running incorrect information after almost 100 years of being proven wrong. They're still putting that information in to promote evolution. So there were just three former facts of evolution. Now I'd like to look at some of the modern facts. Now that they've broken our trust on those, let's look at a couple of others. Let's look at Neanderthals and Australopithecines and see where we stack up on those. What do we know about Neanderthals? Are they humans or are they some archaic cave-type creature or ape-type creature? Uh, related to humans or not related to humans. So what do we know about them? Well, Neanderthals, we've actually found more than almost, well, actually more than 490, 490 individuals. So that's a lot of different Neanderthals we found. But there seems to be some controversy here. See, Neanderthals in the 1960s were considered to be a subspecies of modern humans. However, presently, Neanderthals are considered to be a separate and distinct species from humans. So we can, we can change our mind on Neanderthals also. 
Now, what do we really know about them? Well, they were found in Dusseldorf, Germany, in the Neander Valley, hence their name, Neander Falls. They are originally constructed, looked very ape-like. Again, that was a false construction when they when some anatomists and scientists actually looked at this faulty construction, they redid the bones and found out it really didn't much look much different than human beings are today. Isn't that amazing? The whole preconceived notion of evolution made somebody put the bones together wrong. That's amazing. not honest science. What we're about in Answers in Genesis, whom I work for, Answers in Genesis, we're about integrity in science. We want good science talk. I want to make a clear statement here. We're not about teaching creation or even intelligent design in the science classrooms. What we do want and we do promote is the law. And the law says we're allowed to teach all the scientific evidence that is pro and negative against any particular theory. That is the law. It has been signed by Congress. However, that's not being allowed. Even discussions of that are being terminated in classrooms. So we want all the evidence about Neanderthals, all the evidence about human evolution being taught, not just the faulty information or the evolution side. We need both pro and con. Now, other things we know about Neanderthals. We used to teach, uh, evolutionists used to teach that the bigger brain capacity, the more you've evolved. However, Neanderthals uh, partially have a bigger brain capacity than we do. So they kind of don't touch that too much. They, they were wrong in that one. We also found that the Neanderthals uh, buried their dead with jewelry. They used musical instruments, cave paintings. They were capable of speech. Only humans are capable of full speech. And we found the anatomy enough to show that Neanderthals also had capability of full speech. They even buried their dead. That's a human characteristic. Other animals might dig bones and bury bones, but only humans bury their dead. As a matter of fact, a lot of them were found in caves. It has nothing to do with being an archaic, ape-like creature. It shows a good sign of intelligence. See, if you bury your dead out there in the open and put a marker there, it's very easy for it to be taken or the elements to wash it away. But if you bury your dead in a cave, it's very tough to pick up a cave and take it somewhere. Also, where did Abraham bury Sarah? In a cave. So it shows good signs of intelligence there. They were not lowbrow, non-thinking people. They seemed to be very intelligent. Another part of their anatomy is they seem to have a very thick brow, a brow ridge that kind of stuck out over their eyes there. And that really has nothing to do with evolution, absolutely nothing to do with evolution. We see people with that characteristic today. It can happen by several different methods. The way you chew can cause compression, or maybe living to an older age can cause that. We also see they have a short, stocky body build, shorter extremities. That also has nothing to do with evolution. We have people living like that today called the Inuits, like the Eskimos. It actually protects them in a whole cold, harsh, cold, harsh climate. You see, by having shorter extremities, you give off less body heat. So nothing in Neanderthal anatomy classifies them as something non-human. Then we also see the, the tremendous variability within the human species alone. When we talk about human variability, we had the famous actor, Billy Barty, who was about three foot nine, 100% human. Then we also have Shaquille O'Neal, about seven foot one, 100% human. Look at the tremendous variability within human species. What would happen if we found both the bones side by side or close by and we didn't know who they were? You might say these are two completely different species. But we have to remember that God has given us tremendous variability within our species. We even see a tremendous variability within gorillas. You take a male and female gorilla, you look at the, the skull bones, they look quite a bit different. 
So there's variability within this gorilla family. Within every species, there tends to be tremendous genetic variability possibilities there. Then the other possibility, and the other thing is, we just look at population growth rates. I love to look at numbers. When we look at Neanderthal populations, they were common about 130,000 to 30,000 years ago. They actually extend back to over 200,000 years ago, but I'm going to use the biggest common dates, about 130,000 to 30,000 years ago were the biggest dates for Neanderthal populations. Now, that's about 100,000 years, and that would amount to somewhere around 4,000 generations of Neanderthals. Now, let's keep that in mind. 100,000 years, about 4,000 generations. Now, if we take a look at the world population, in year one, we estimate it was about 300 million. That's an estimate, close estimate. Today, it's over 6 billion. That's about 100 generations. We've increased the population of this planet in 2,000 years to over 6 billion in just 100 generations. Now, if we had 4,000 generations of Neanderthals over 100,000 years, when you do your population statistics and account for all, all the wars and types of things we had today, there should have been easily over 50 billion Neanderthals that lived during that time. question I'd ask is, where are all the bones? We should be stepping on Neanderthal bones everywhere we go, but we aren't. And you can, might say, well, we, we don't have good fossil potential, but we find a lot of dinosaur bones, and they didn't bury their dead. Neanderthals buried their dead, so where are all those bones? So that turns out to be a, a very large problem for evolution when you look at population statistics. So what were Neanderthals? Well, they have protruding brow ridge, so do humans today. Short, stocky body build, so do humans today. What it seems to be, they were an isolated population of people that lived in a cold, harsh climate sometime during the Ice Age. But what we do know about them is they're 100% human that lived after the flood. So nothing abnormal there, just people that had some abnormalities, but nothing we don't have today. So let's take a look at the other common case we see, and that's called Lucy and the Australopithecines. Australo meaning southern, Pithecine meaning ape, southern ape. We find most of these creatures in South Africa. Now we look at this creature, Lucy. Lucy is a type of Australopithecine. One of the most famous ones is actually a book out called Lucy, The Beginnings of Humankind. We need to find out what was found and did Lucy walk upright? See, there's a key right there. Evolutionists need some creature that evolved from being a quadruped walking on all fours to a biped walking upright. And they claim one of those creatures was Lucy. Now, when you look in your textbooks, you see an awful lot of artistic conceptions of what Lucy looked like. And in all these pictures, you have Lucy walking upright using tools, and kind of gazing off into the distance, maybe contemplating Einstein's theories of relativity. But they put a great intelligence there. But you've got to remember, these pictures and textbooks are just that, pictures drawn by artists. And they take sometimes a great license, liberal license, to draw these pictures. We need to get back to a little bit more honesty in our description of science and not get into science fiction. And again, I would say what we're about in Answers in Genesis, it's teaching all the science, we don't want religion taught, but all the science and allow students to do, have a little bit of academic freedom because academic freedom seems to have been stymied by promoting evolution. Now, back to Lucy, what was found? Well, first of all, Lucy was discovered in 1974. About 40% of Lucy was found, and that is a lot of fossil evidence. We normally don't find that much, but 40% is a pretty good amount of fossil time. 
And Lucy was claimed to be just over 3 million years old and claimed it was could walk upright. Even Donald Johansson, uh, uh, who was Discover, uh, uh, claimed it would walk upright. Now, did Lucy really walk upright? Now, we can look at a lot of parts of the anatomy. I'm just going to take time to look at three parts of the anatomy of Lucy to determine if she could walk upright. We'll look at the rib cage, we'll look at the pelvis, and we'll look at the leg and foot bones. What do we know about each one of these? Well, when we look at rib cages, apes and humans have a different shaped rib cage. Apes are more conical in shape. Apes are more conical in their shape. Humans, it turns out to be, are more barrel-shaped. So there's a difference in our rib cage. Apes being conical, human ribs are more circular or barrel-shaped. Now, which was Lucy? Well, Peter Schmidt, a paleontologist at the Anthropological Institute in Zurich, makes this statement. He says, quote, when I started to put the skeleton together, I expected it to look human. You notice right there, he expects it to look human, and that's because of its evolution presupposition. But then he goes on to say, but the shape of the rib cage itself was the biggest surprise of all. The human rib cage is barrel shaped, and I just couldn't get Lucy's ribs to fit this kind of shape. So when, let's take a look at the textbooks now. What do we see in the textbooks? We see Lucy having a human rib cage, even though the fossil evidence did not support that. So again, we're not doing very good on our academic freedom. We're trying to indoctrinate people into a belief in evolution. You see, if evolution has really got some evidence, if they are really scientific, why do they have to resort to this level of deception? That's the question I would have. Why can't they just teach the science? So now let's go to the next part. We've looked at the rib cage. Let's look at the pelvic area. Humans and chimpanzees have a very different pelvic shape. And, and chips and apes, they're, they're much more horizontal. That's because they're more quadruped. They can walk upright on twos, but not very often and not very comfortable. Their pelvic is more horizontal. We're humans. Ours is more vertical shaped. That's why we're bipeds. We can walk upright comfortably as our main form of locomotion. So there's a big difference in our pelvic shape. Well, what did the pelvic of Lucy, pelvic area of Lucy look like? Well, Jay Stern and Randall Sussman, in their, in their article in the American Journal of Physical Anthropology, make this statement. The marked resemblance of Lucy to the chimpanzee is equally obvious. It suggests to us that the mechanism of lateral pelvic balance during bipedalism was closer to that in apes than in humans. Now, what do we see in the textbooks again? We see Lucy standing upright and making us believe that's her main form of locomotion. Again, that's not good science. That's not academic freedom. That's forcing people to believe something that may and is not true. Now, th there's more to the story on Lucy's pelvic bone. When, we f when the scientists found Lucy's pelvic bone, they freely admit it did not look human-like. It looked very much like an ape-like creature. So what happens? Well, the evolutionists don't accept that. They assume, notice this word assume, that Lucy's pelvic bone was originally human-like, originally human-like. And when it died, it laid out there and somehow got crushed and broken apart and then somehow fused together again to make it look like an ape. You notice all those assumptions there. Was anybody ever there to see that? So what do they do? Well, broadcasting this on national television on PBS in 1994, here we see the, the evolutionist taking the bones 
taking the pelvic bone, right there on PBS Nova series called In Search of Human Origins, 1994, Dr. Owen Lovejoy. What he does, he talks all about the situation of Lucy's pelvic bone, couldn't possibly have looked like an ape, it must have looked like a human. So what they do is take Lucy's pelvic bone on national television, they take a replica, not the real bones, but a replica, saw it apart, and you can actually hear the buzzsaw in the background, and then put it back together again to make it look human. In other words, evidence does not matter. That's what that show just showed. It clearly shows that to the evolutionist, evidence does not matter. So if evidence does not matter, what really matters? You see, presuppositions are determining how we interpret all evidence. I, as a Christian, interpret my evidence based on God's word. Evolutionists, as their presupposition, rule out any divine creator and interpret what they have as, as evolution. So when it really gets down to the bottom line, it's about presuppositions. It's your worldview. Evidence against evidence is not the real issue. That's what that show clearly showed. Now, what do we know next? So we've seen the, the, the rib cage. We've seen the pelvic bone. Both clearly show that Lucy could not walk upright unless you change the evidence. The next thing we have is Lucy's leg bones. See, in humans, when we put our legs, uh, we take a look at our upper leg bone and where it connects to the knee and then the lower leg bone, we have what's called a carrying angle. We're knock kneed, and that's good. That allows us, when we walk, to have our foot come right underneath our center of gravity. If we weren't knock kneed, we'd be shifting left and right every time we walk, kind of like a wobbly motion, just like apes. Now, humans have a carrying angle where the knee joint comes together of about nine degrees. The claim for Lucy is she had a very high carrying angle, even higher than humans. And the claim is that makes her an intermediate link. Well, because gorillas have a zero degree, some chimpanzees have a zero degree carrying angle, therefore Lucy must be an intermediate, uh, somewhere between humans and apes. Well, that's an interesting statement. But again, it's only looking at part of the evidence and not all the evidence. See, that's what we're, again, I'm going to keep pointing that out. In Answers in Genesis, Gracious, we want all the evidence to talk. You see, as creationists, we're not afraid of the science. We're willing to teach all the science. The question to ask, are there any living ape-like creatures that have a carrying angle? And yes, there are. The orangutan and the spider monkey both have identical carrying angles to human beings. What does that mean about Lucy? Lucy could be nothing more than an extinct type of chimpanzee with a carrying angle that walked out on tree branches. You see, they're only looking at part of the evidence, only teaching part of the evidence, and not all the evidence. That's called censorship. We need to get beyond censorship. If evolution is really factual and really scientific, why do we have to resort to that, that level of deception? Now, the next problem that comes up is footprints. Apes and humans have very different feet. In, in humans, we have a thumb and four fingers, but a thumb has the ability to stick out and move around. That's so we can pick things up and we can swing from trees with our hands. But you look at our, our feet, our great toe sticks straight forward, doesn't have the ability to be like a thumb. Why is that? Well, normally people, we don't pick things up with our feet and we don't swing from trees with our feet. But apes, all apes, their great toe sticks out like a thumb, has that capability. In other words, they swing from trees with their feet, they can pick things up with their feet. Their, their great toe is much like a thumb. So it's easy to tell the difference between an ape and human foot. That takes us to the famous Laetoli footprints, which was discovered in 1978 in Tanzania. 
The footprints were dated a little over 3 million years old. Now, the question is, who made these footprints? According to evolutionists, they're over 3 million years old. Well, who was living 3 million years ago? Lucy and the Australopithecines. Certainly not humans. Humans didn't come aboard for a long time. Well, when we examine the Laotelli footprints, an amazing discovery happens. Those footprints look identical to human footprints. John Johansson, the discoverer of Lucy, makes this statement, and I quote, make no mistake about it, they are like modern human footprints. Notice they don't look like an ape at all. So now we, there's a dilemma here. The footprints are over 3 million years old. The footprints look human. Humans were not living 3 million years ago. So who made those footprints? The only people living, the only uh, creatures living back then would have been Lucy and the Australopithecines. So what are the evolutionists going to do about this dilemma? Because every foot bone that has been found for the Australopithecines, when you examine the actual fossil evidence, looks identical to an ape. Not one of their foot bones looks like a human. So what are the evolutionists going to do? Well, to solve this problem, I went to get a biology textbook. Uh, drawing, the, drawing from life, the science of biology textbook. And in that textbook, they had a picture of Lucy. And you look at Lucy's feet, they look identical to humans. In other words, they forge the picture to deceive people. Not one Australopithecine footbone looks like that. So they change the data again. You go to the St. Louis Museum and Zoo. There in there, there's a statue of Lucy standing three and a half feet tall right across from the Darwin exhibit. And right there is a full replica of Lucy. You look at the feet, and they look like hairy human feet. The great toe looks identical to humans. Again, deception. That's not science, folks. If evolution is science, why must they do this? When asked, uh, we even asked one of the uh, experts there, Professor Betsy Schumann, evolutionist expert, admits that statues' feet probably are not accurate. But asked if they should change the statue, she said, absolutely not. She's more interested in promoting evolution than science. So we have a major problem right there in, in our education system. Our education system has fallen for deception. When you look at the textbooks, when you take a case, of, you take a, an actual skull of an Australopithecine, you see it looks identical to apes. It has large canine teeth. The eyes are shaped a little bit slanting backward. And the face has a tremendous slant to it because you see in humans from our chin to our forehead is almost straight up and down. But in apes, it slants way out. All ape creatures look pretty much like that. They're quadrupeds. And the Australopithecine skull bones look exactly like that. But when I look in a textbook, I see something very different, what they show for Lucy. The teeth look identical to humans. The eye sockets look identical to humans, and they flatten the face out. That's not good science. Why can't we just teach the science? Even the latest discoveries, two anthropologists and anatomists from Israel, the School of Medicine, talk about the presence of the morphology in both the latter and Australopithecus afrancis, that's Lucy, and its absence in modern humans cast doubt on the role of Lucy as a common ancestor. The modern evidence and all the evidence now shows that Lucy was nothing more than an extinct ape-like creature. We need to get back to good science. If we're going to call ourselves a theory, we need to be able to act like we have the science and not doctor it up. So is it really possible for an ape-like creature to evolve into human? 
That's the next part. The, the fossil evidence clearly does not support that. The, what were claimed as facts turn out not to be facts. But is it possible? Is it even possible for an ape-like creature to come to a human being? For there, we need to go to genetics, how things change. And we look at two parts, mutations and natural selection. See, the evolutionists claimed that random mutations combined with selection created all the biological information we have today. Now, we open up our textbooks, we see this big chart of the, of the geologic column and the progression of simple creatures to the more complex creatures, the upper progression from what are called simplest to more complex creatures. In order for that to happen, that requires the, the addition of new genetic information. See, information is a key to this whole thing. Now, what do we know about mutations? Well, mutations we know can be detrimental, neutral, or even beneficial. There are recognized beneficial mutations. But what do we know about each, time, each kind of those? Well, detrimental mutations cause disease, sickness, and death, and uh, there's no evolution there. They go the wrong way. Neutral mutations, there's no change, so there's no evolution there. So the key now is beneficial mutations. Will a beneficial mutation allow for evolution, ape-like creature to human? And the answer has to be absolutely not if you understand anything about genetics. You must have a beneficial mutation that adds new functional information, and you have to survive and produce more offspring. So the key is information. What do we know about this information? Well, Dr. Lee Spetner, he has his Ph.D. in physics from MIT and taught information and communications at Don Hopkins University, makes this statement in his book, Not By Chance. I quote, But in all the reading I've done in the life sciences literature, I've never found a mutation that added information. That's a pretty good scientist there from MIT. Here's another gentleman, John Sanford, who has a Ph.D. in genetics, writes this, and I quote, Amazingly, there are still no known mutations which unambiguously create or add information, not even the ones that are considered beneficial. He uses the word unambiguously because there's been some controversy. But even if you had two or three, evolution requires millions of those, and we can't factually name any. Here's another gentleman. Royal Truman has his Ph.D. in chemistry, writes this. It seems fair to point out that evolutionists have yet to provide even a single concrete example of a mutation leading to the increase of information as requested. So those are just some scientists. So not all scientists agree that evolution is possible. Right there, we just gave three very credentialed scientists to say, show me the beneficial mutations that add information. That's the challenge. Not two or three. I need to see millions. That's just like the fossil record. If you're going to show the fossil record supports evolution, show me the millions of transitions. We can't do that. Every book I read has the same ledge five or six. So mutations don't do it. But what about selection? Is selection true? Yes, selection is a fact. Natural selection is a fact. I just want to point that out because some evolutionists don't think creationists believe in natural selection. Yes, we do. It's a fact. We see it all the time. But can natural selection cause one kind or species to become another kind? And the answer has to be no. If you understand selection, the answer has to be no. You see, selection only selects what already exists. It never adds anything new. So selection can't add anything new. And if mutations have not been shown to add the new information, selection can't add it. There's no mechanism. The other thing you need to understand is how selection really works. You see, selection is sometimes taught as picking out an individual mutation and working on that individual mutation. Well, that's not how it works. You see, selection 
never works at the individual nucleotide level. It never works that way. In other words, if you had a, a beneficial mutation, selection just does not select that individual or point mutation. It always selects at the whole group level. It never selects at the individual nucleotide. And what, we, what the geneticists have shown that as far as beneficial mutations are concerned, every beneficial one, we have about 10,000 detrimental ones. So if we were to choose that one beneficial one, what do we also choose with it? All the detrimental ones that go with it. That means as a species, it's going downhill. Now, there are other people that make the same statement. James Crow, professor of genetics at the University of Wisconsin, chair of the Department of Medical Genetics. He makes a statement in 1997, and James Crow is an evolutionist. He says, the typical mutation is very mild. It usually has no effect, but shows up as a small decrease in viability or fertility. Each mutation leads ultimately to one genetic death. As well as one of your top geneticists there. Likewise, Moto Kimura, PhD in genetics, considered to be one of the greatest evolutionary geneticists, and makes this shows in his charts that there's not even enough beneficial mutations to make it into the selection zone. In other words, most all mutations are detrimental or neutral. And the beneficial ones are so few, they don't even make it to the selection zone. And that's one of the top evolutionary geneticists of our time, making that point. So there's simply no mechanism for evolutionary change. But the Bible, we do have an answer. It's called God created everything after its kind with genetic variability. See, we recognize there's genetic variability. We see it in the dog kind the cat kind, the, the bovine kind, humans. We see genetic variability, but variability has limitations. You can't take a tomato and work with it and, and come up with a 900-pound tomato. There's, there's limits to variability there. It just can't happen. Likewise, we can't say we're going to high jump to the moon. You can try all your life. You'll never make it. There are limits to variability there. That's just plain science. Now, I'd like to also point out that sometimes evolutionists will say we're only 3% different than the apes. That makes us very close. It used to be 1%, then 2%, then 3%. Matter of fact, it's now closer to 6 to 7% because they weren't looking at all the DNA. And that presented another problem with, with uh, modern science. One of the greatest hindrances to modern science was something called junk DNA. See, for a long time, evolutionists claimed that since only 3% of our DNA is known for coding proteins, the other 97% must be junk. So we didn't bother to ever look at that. Well, that turned out to be a great hindrance to modern science because what we have now found out today is most all of that does have a function. It may not code for making proteins, but it has very significant functions. So there is a problem with evolution right there, hindering modern scientific advancements. Well, when we, let's just take 3%. Is 3% very close? Well, it sounds close because it's 3, but when you add all that up, that's really about 90 million differences. See, when you do the numbers correctly, it's about 90 million differences. That's way too much to ever make up. That's far too much to make up. Now, when I go through some of these books, I'd like to point out a few things here. There, there's, again, some of the incorrect statements, scientifically incorrect statements being made to support evolution. For example, here's a gentleman who was a professor of anthropology makes this statement. The shift in hunting from small to big game had an enormous effect on the shaping of man. 
nearly doubling the size of its brain and transforming one breed of Australopithecus to Homo erectus. Well, folks, that is completely incorrect science, but there it is in the books to promote evolution. Why is it bad science? Because hunting larger animals or buffaloes instead of rabbits does not affect the DNA of the reproductive cells. It would not cause an ape to change into a human being. Just because you hunt bigger game doesn't mean you're going to evolve. That's a completely incorrect statement. Mr. Riddle, you have uh, two minutes, and then we'll just go to a, la a last-minute discussion. Okay, let me, find, let me tell you why this matters. Why does it all matter? Let me give you four worldview questions. Question number one, who am I? See, if you're believing in evolution, you're nothing more than an animal with higher intelligence. But if you're believing the Bible, you're made in the image and likeness of God, and you're fearfully and wonderfully made. Do you see the difference between the two? The second worldview question, why am I here? Evolution teaches you're a chance accident, and that made your existence possible. But the Bible clearly teaches you're here because of God's love. John 3:16, Romans 5:8, and Titus 3, 3 through 5, all teach that. We're here because God loved us. Third worldview question, what is the purpose of life? If you're believing in evolution, it's whatever you make it. But if you're believing the Bible, your purpose is to know, love, glorify, obey, and enjoy God. Don't forget that, enjoy God. Do you see the difference there? And finally, the fourth worldview question, what happens when I die? Evolution teaches you go back to dust, and that's the end of life. But see, if you're believing the Bible, it depends on your relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what I'd ask everybody out there. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? That will make all the difference in your eternity right there. You see, what you believe does have eternal consequences. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, my brother, for that. I, I'm sorry to uh, to ask for these last 15 minutes. I'm just reading the chat lines, and uh, I would just love for you to uh, to bring up some facts, just in, in short short bullet points, so that I can have the ammo and so other Christians can have the ammo. Um, one of the things that we believe as creationists is intelligent design. Can you uh, show us in science where the complexity of the design of creation proves that there is a designer. Can you just give us examples of how we wouldn't have anything, life information, without a designer? Can you give us some scientific proof of that, that it couldn't have came from anything, it had to come from a creator? Well, the best evidence I think we have, one of the best evidences we have is the, uh, the cell itself. The cell is, is right now, as far as we know scientifically, an impossibility to create on our own or to happen by reign of chance. If we can't even get a single protein by reign of chance, what about the DNA, which is many more times complex and full of information? So the cell, in all its amazing complexity, is far too complex for random chance processes to ever have evolved. So I would just go right there. That's the best one that, okay. uh, as far as the cell. So you would say the cell is the number one proof of a designer because there's no way we can even create the cell or things that uh, make up the cell, like you said, proteins. Well, I'd say it's our number two. Our number one is the Bible itself. Okay. The Word of God. Awesome, awesome. Our number two would be his, his, his evidence. See, God gave us two sources of evidence. One is his word, and secondly, his creation. Awesome. Okay, can you give us evidence that dinosaurs did not live hundreds of million years ago and that the geologic column and ret um, radiometric dating and uh, things like that are not true, 
but man lived with dinosaurs, and the age of the earth is only 6,000 years old. So maybe just start with one, the age of the earth, and then maybe move your way to the dinosaurs in, in either order. But I think those are two things that always come up, is the age of the earth. That's what people uh, really make fun of us about, and they, and they give Christians a hard time because we believe the age of the earth is only 6,000 years old when there seems to be so much evidence otherwise. And then when we point to man live with dinosaurs, they say that these dinosaurs' bones are dated uh, hundreds of millions of years old. So how does a Christian make sense of all of that? Well, there, there's when we talk about the age of the earth, uh, that really is a presupposition question because it, it really gets to how we believe everything got here. My presupposition is that in the beginning, God created everything in six literal days about 6,000 years ago. That's my presupposition. And my presupposition starts with God as the creator of matter and all things. The evolutionists must start with nothing and then somehow get a big bang. That's a big leap of faith right there. So even right there, they don't have a starting point. But we'll go to the uh, radioisotope dating methods right there. And we need to understand that when we talk about science, there's two kinds of science. There's operational science, and that's how we sent people to the moon, do a lot of our medical research today, do our computers, build our jet engines. Then there's historical science. Historical science is dealing with things that happened in the past. And we must make assumptions about that. For instance, for example, fossils exist in the present, but how they got there is in the past. We weren't there to observe that. And that's the same thing about radioisotope dating methods. We find rocks. We can do operational science on them, but we must make certain assumptions in a radiometric dating, such as was that specimen, that rock, always in a closed system? And it never was. Was the, was the uh, radioactive decay rate always the same? And we've showed that's not true either. So we, there are certain assumptions. Is all the daughter element because of radioactive decay, or, or did it seep in her somehow? So we have shown that not to necessarily be true. So the radioisotope dating methods are based on assumptions. Are they always giving the same answer? Absolutely not. We have many cases that if you date the same rock, by four different methods, you will get four completely different answers, sometimes ranging by over hundreds of millions of years. But we don't see that in the textbooks. We don't see the actual research and all the data in the textbooks. All we see is the date they want. Again, there's the deception. Now, you can believe that, that they're all the Earth is four and a half billion years old, but when you look at the actual data, rather than just going on emotion, we see something very different. Now, the, one of the biggest evidence we have deals with carbon-14. I'll just do a real brief one. Well, later we can uh, go through the whole process because I do a lot of work in that area with carbon-14. I'm very familiar with it. Uh, carbon-14, uh, first of all, uh, is produced in the atmosphere by cosmic rays. converts some of the nitrogen in the atmosphere into uh, carbon-14. And the carbon-14 gets taken in, uh, combines with oxygen. We get carbon dioxide and gets taken in by the plants. We eat and breathe it. So all living things have carbon-14 in them all organic material. So carbon-14 can only be used to date organic material, once living things. Generally, really can't be used to date rocks because rocks don't eat or breathe. So you really wouldn't find carbon-14 in rocks. So now, here's the process. Carbon-14 has a rather fast half-life. The half-life of carbon-14 is about 5,730 years. That's relatively quick when you look at things like uranium and that, which have half-lives of billions of years. So about 5,730 years. So once something dies now, it's no longer taking in carbon-14. But carbon-14 is radioactive. It decays. 
basically it decays back into nitrogen 14 where it started from. So once something's lit, once something's living, living, it's taking in carbon 14 and there's decay going up. But once you die, the clock really starts. The carbon 14 continues to decay, but no more intake. And we've measured the half-life of carbon-14. We estimate the maximum dating range for carbon-14 is about 80,000 years. That's about the maximum dating range. So if we were to find a fossil and it had no carbon-14, measurable carbon-14 in we would estimate it's over, older than 80,000 years. However, if we were to find still carbon-14 in this sample, we would assume it's younger than 80,000 years. Well, here comes the problem now with carbon-14. When we look at the geologic column, when we look at the geologic column, something very interesting shows up. We, we look at the different layers of, of the geologic column, we see we can divide it up into maybe the Paleozoic, Mesozoic, Cenozoic, here is there. The Paleozoic going back to 540 million years ago, Mesozoic about to 240 million years ago, and the Cenozoic beginning about 65 million years ago. Oh, the Paleozoic is the time when we have fish and invertebrate. The Mesozoic is the age of the dinosaurs, and the Cenozoic is the age of the mammals. That's the evolutionary time scale. Well, that's very interesting. But what, was, what happened was scientists took coal samples from all different locations in the, fossil, in the geologic column. Now, coal is supposed to be millions of years old, so there should be no carbon-14 in there. Took coal samples from all these different locations. Then they took them to some of the best evolutionist labs, and they said, what do you find in here? And in every sample of coal, it contained measurable amounts of carbon-14, almost the same amount in all the different layers in the geologic column. Now, what does that tell us? Well, these results indicate that the entire geologic column cannot be millions of years old and confirms the Bible and challenges the idea of millions of years in geologic age. shows that geologic column can only be thousands, not millions of years old. Now, this is based on observable science. We can take this coal every time and find carbon-14 in it, and we can rule out contamination the best we can. So that is a great devastating blow to this old Earth idea. Awesome. But we didn't stop there. These scientists took diamonds, which are supposed to be billions of years old, and they took the diamonds and took them to the evolutionist labs again. What did they find in diamonds? Carbon-14. And, carb and diamonds are not going to have contamination. Again, the observable, repeatable evidence shows this earth isn't that old. So awesome. when we get to the age, the Bible agrees with a young earth. Beautiful. Can we get and now so to the uh, to age of fossils and with dinosaurs and man? We've got about two more minutes, and then I'm going to wrap it up with a uh, last final statement here. So just uh, make your last point for us, please, Mr. Riddle, on uh, dinosaurs living with man and the age of these fossils. Well, the Bible clearly teaches that dinosaurs and humans lived at the same time. On day six of creation, God created humans, Adam and Eve, and he also created the land animals, which included dinosaurs. So the Bible clearly teaches that, and the science does support it. Science will always support God's word, because who created the science? God did. It will never contradict his word. So what evidence do we have that dinosaurs and humans lived at the same time? Well, one of the recent ones was the, uh, the soft tissue found in the T-Rex bones. Uh, soft enough to squeeze out microscopic structures, soft enough to be elastic. There is some place on the Internet you can go and see this, uh, elasticity of this soft tissue. That's pretty hard to believe that's millions of years old. And there's other finds. We find uh, petroglyphs, uh, cave paintings of dinosaur creatures 
How did they know to draw these if nobody ever saw them? So the evidence does support that. And there's absolutely no scientific proof that dinosaurs died out 65 million years ago. Not one proof. So that would be uh, the dinosaurs. Awesome. Okay, uh, I think we covered everything. Uh, you have just another minute here. I just maybe just want to take the last two or three minutes just to kind of wrap it up and thank all my friends for coming and then prepare for the debate. But uh, why don't we just go to uh, logic and uh, the meaning of life, uh, the difference between what a creationist uh, views the meaning of life and uh, the origin of life versus an evolutionary view. Just uh, If you just have just two minutes, brother, you were sharing that with me the other day, just uh, leave me the last two minutes here, maybe we're at 58 after, and just take us to uh, the meaning of life and origin of life from a creationist point of view. From a creationist point of view, all, all life is created by God after his kind. All life has meaning. All life is precious. Now, you might say, what about cockroach and things like that? But God created everything. God created everything very good. Genesis 1.31. If his very good includes millions of years of death and decay and suffering, then what else does it mean when it says God is good? So we believe as creationists that his creation is very good. And through sin, rebellion against God's perfect creation, we have all the problems we have today. It's, it's Man has a free will there. Man decided to rebel against God's perfect creation, and then sin entered the world, and God placed a curse, and we have corruption since then. So sin entered that. But God gave us an out. He gave us his son, Jesus Christ. John 3:16. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He loves all people. He wants all men everywhere to come to a saving knowledge. He, he, he saved me when I was 30. See, I used to believe in evolution. I was an evolutionist until I was 30 years old. Then I began to study the science, and what I found out was the science confirms that there is a God, and there is a God, that his word is true beginning to end, and we don't need to compromise it. Brother, I love that. That's what I'll end on that note right there, Joe. Awesome, brother. Well, uh, I'll let you uh, hang up if you would like to now, and then uh, go ahead and uh, take a break, You know, get, get some water, do what you got to do, and I'll call you at 910, okay, my brother? Okay. You are so awesome. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Guys, Bye. that was uh, Mike Riddle from Answers in Genesis giving us a lecture on uh, why we believe in uh, creationism. I know some of you wanted to hear more of creation science, but uh, he took the route of debunking some evolution science. And uh, I think the reason why he was doing that is he was showing us that uh, evolution is, is a theory. It's not proven true. And creation still makes more sense. Now, many of you might be saying, Joe, I don't even agree with that. This is crazy. I can't even believe I just sat through an hour of that. Some of you are like, ah, I can just see it through your chats right now. Well, listen up, guys. You guys are going to have your star guy come on the platform right here. I'm going to be calling him up in just a few minutes. We're going to be starting at around 9 o'clock here. But I just want to let you guys know this, man, that, that this show, What Do You Believe, is a show that I started as a Christian pastor. Okay, So that's who I am. I'm a Christian pastor. It's a Christian show. Now, I look at the show very similar to my house. You guys are welcome. Welcome in my house. You guys are welcome to come to this show, whoever you are, whatever you believe. The only thing that I ask is that we just use PG language. Maybe you have a reason that PG language is uh, non-PG 
PG language is acceptable, but to me it's not. Calling people ASSs and tell them to go F themselves and all of that, that's just not acceptable. But those of you that are here staying cool, calm, and collective, as, it, as much as we disagree, I just want to thank you for that. And, uh, dude, this show has only been on the air about four weeks. I, I'm, I'm trying to get good at it, so if you see any uh, things I can do better, let me know. We just found out about Skype, and hopefully the sound there was so much better. And, uh, you know, right now Tuesdays is the Christian Bible study. I do that on purpose so that, you know, I can have a Bible study with people who believe in God, just like all the other uh, uh, atheist sites have their discussions and so on and so forth. That's what we do on Tuesdays. And then Thursdays is our debate forum. So that's today. And uh, this has been our science and creation debate, or rather creation versus evolution debate on science, how you view the evidence. And uh, what we've been doing is just tackling it for the last two weeks. So after these two weeks, starting next week, I'm going to start up a new series. And I'm going to start thinking about that and getting in touch with some of my friends. But hopefully today this question of evolution and, and, and creation will be settled in a lot of people's minds. And uh, I'm really looking to have some good evidence presented tonight. So uh, I'm going to get some guys on the phone. We're going to have a little pregame debate show. Our debaters are going to get on at around 9.10, but I want to hear from uh, Christian Hillbilly. He's a creationist. And then uh, my man, Astavi, was supposed to be here, and I don't see Astavi in the room. Astavi, if you're here, you need to send me a quick what's up, because uh, I asked you to be here a little bit early, and I don't see you, and it was supposed to be your turn to talk about atheism. If Astavi cannot make it within the next few moments, a Gnostic atheist or atheist at large, the first one to, uh, to hit me up with a private message, of your number. I will let you represent the other side. I love having a pre and post game debate show because it kind of lets you know what we're expecting to see, what the atheist is wanting to see, what the Christian is wanting to see. And, uh, and I really like having a fair opportunity here for everybody to talk. So, uh, Christian Hillbilly, I'm about ready to give you a call. And uh, atheist at, at large, okay, Gnostic is in Norway. Okay, uh, atheist at large, can I just get a yes from you? You have my number. Okay, guys, enjoy the uh, intro music, and uh, people complain sometimes about our Christian-style music, but hey, it's our show. Uh, thank you for coming. You know, like when you come to somebody's house, you kind of got to eat the food they serve, and if you don't, you kind of just got to sit there and, and just wait for dinner to be over. So just kind of hang on as we t sing this song, because a lot of people, when we debate, don't think we know anything, and I love it how Thousand Foot Crutch put it in a song form. So just give me a moment, and then... And we got the pregame debate show coming up. Thank you, everybody, for joining us on What You Believe. This is Joe Irostic. Pick up the phone, nobody's home, I'm all alone. We've all been here before. Yesterday, I saw change another way. As you walked out the door, it's a twist a little bit, I'll admit it. But we're stronger than before. Open up, we've had enough, we've had enough. And now we're holding on and waiting. What do we know? 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 I'll tell you what they're all saying. What do we know? 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 I'll tell you what they're all saying. We all try to be somebody, but the world around us makes it so cloudy when we all trust where we're supposed to put the blood on the head. 
Can you hear me? Yo. All right. Is this Leo on the phone? Do we got Leo in the house? Yep. Yep, yep, yep. All right. It's so good to have you guys with me. Leo, do I got Christian Hillbilly in the house? Yes, sir, you do. All right. All right, guys. I want to give you just a few minutes to uh, tell us what you think uh, and what you want to see happen tonight in the debate. It's uh, great to see the place filling up. And everybody that's here, thank you for showing up. And we heard just a lot from our Christian representative. So I'll start with you, atheist at large. How do you think he did? And what do you think we're going to hear tonight from your guy? And how's it going to go down? Give us a, a few minutes synopsis of your opinion here. Well, uh, David is a deist, not a, a, a true theist, is what uh, you are starting to believe. Um, uh, why he said theist, I'm not sure. We've had uh, quite lengthy conversations on his beliefs, and his beliefs do not reflect anything that you believe in the slightest of iotas. Uh, the way that he believes uh, actually has merit. The only fallacy is is that he deems to label what he believes as a god. And this is something that uh, I will uh, never accept. And, uh, in, in fact, uh, the definition of god uh, negates its ability to be a god. So um, that's, that's the position of, of what David is. Um, once again, he doesn't believe in a personal god such as you that has um, the ability to manipulate or the desire to manipulate people's lives, et cetera. Okay, are you still there? And why I chose it? Yeah, and why I chose a, a show uh, fallacies on what you uh, uh, what you creationists try to come up with, and um, act, actually stop the lies that you are propagating with your creationism. So that's what I'd like to see. You know, stop it cold. And to use somebody that has a different version of, of, a, of a god, but nonetheless has a version of a god, to totally refute your god. Okay. Well, that's what we're looking for. So basically, atheists at large is looking for the refutation of the Bible and what we believe as creationism. Mm -hmm. And uh, Christian Hillbilly, uh, what are you looking for tonight? Well, uh, I'd like to thank Mike for coming in and, and giving that talk to us. I, I've uh, really learned quite a bit from what he had to say, some of it I've heard before, but I just love the way he actually put it out there. Uh, I do uh, understand where this gentleman is coming from on deism. 
uh, he they're they're more accepting of of a deist position than they would be a Christian position. I do understand that. Um, but what I'm hoping to see, what I'm hoping to see tonight is uh, uh, the evidence of the scientific evidence being portrayed out here tonight, that we can understand that we all have the same scientific evidence. I mean, we all have the same fossils. We all have the same uh, earth. We all have the same reality around us. It's how we interpret that information. Um, I look at the evidence that uh, Mike provided with uh, for us tonight, and, and that just says it all. But another person can look at that same evidence, and because of their outlook, because of their evolutionary blinders that they would like to have on, they uh, dispute or refuse to accept or even acknowledge the evidence. Okay. Um, you know, and that's just evidence of, again, that God gives us free will to choose. He gives us the ability to choose which direction we'd like to go. But I think the evidence is quite uh, on our side. Science is Christianity's best friend. Okay, so uh, atheist at large, uh, tonight's debate is basically trying to debunk what the Bible has to say about science. You know, the six-day creation, uh, six-thousand-year-old Earth. Uh, you know, life not evolving but coming from a creator, etc. What are you looking for from Mr. Rodriguez to be the nail in the coffin to uh, stop the lies of how you would say creationism? What what what's going to be the best the best point you're looking for him to bring down tonight? Well, basically to expose Riddle for uh, what he is and what he's doing, and that's using using parts of science, parts of knowledge, to in order in order to prove his or to try and prove his point. Once his points are made, they can be easily refuted for those that have the information. He's able to use uh, texts and um, uh, books, etc that most people haven't read or most people don't know this guy from uh Wisconsin and the uh the other guy that he's talking about. So it's real easy <clears throat> to use that type of information to try and cause people to believe what he's talking about. What I'd like to see happen is absolute proof of credible peer uh 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 sources from, from peers that demand the truth to be made the truth to be said for these, uh, shall I say, accusations of evolution and to prove these accusations of evolution and to deny creationism any sort of, of fact uh, uh, in its belief, in its structure whatsoever. Okay, thank you. Uh, Christian Hillbilly, uh, of course, you as a Christian and myself as well don't uh, agree the Bible contradicts science. What is the point that uh, Mike Riddle needs to make to Mr. Rodriguez to have uh, every evolution out, evolutionist and atheist out there to see? What is going to be the smoking gun for Mike Riddle on the Christian side today? Okay. Well, the smoking gun is simply going to be uh, the fact that there uh, excuse is me, just, no Just hold evidence. for a second. Hold for a second. Uh, I got to let you go. Uh, okay, I had to let uh, Leo go, but but he said his. Uh, we gave uh, each point a chance. Now, uh, Christian Neil Billy, just one more time. What is going to be the smoking gun tonight for creationism for the point of Mr. Rodriguez? Towards evolution. Well, again, I think what's going to be the smoking gun tonight for creationism is uh, pointing out that, that science is Christianity's best friend, that science and Christianity uh, go hand in hand 
with one another. Uh, again, we all have the same evidence. We all have the same physical evidence all around us. And that evidence does not contradict what the Bible teaches. Uh, as a matter of fact, I love the statement that, uh, that the gentleman was saying that the uh, accusations of evolution. Well, you know what? The accusations of evolution are that, that we all came from accidental chances and that we're all here uh, by random mutations. Well, you know what? That, that accusation of evolution is a non-repeatable, non-scientific accusation. So I, again, would have to say that science is on the Christian's best friend, uh, is on the Christian side and is the Christian's best friend. Because awesome. what we claim as Christians is repeatable, is right. testable. Awesome. Thank you, Christian Hillbilly, and thank you, Atheist at Large. Sorry I had to let you go there. We're getting some feedback. Guys, uh, let's enjoy the debate. I'm now going to get our uh, other people online, and, uh, man, we are going to have an awesome debate tonight. Welcome to What Do You Believe? I'm Joe Irosik, the host of the show, and tonight what we're debating is creation versus evolution, and specifically in the creation versus evolution discussion, what we're debating is whether or not the Bible is verifiable in its claims, meaning when the Bible says that the earth is uh, 6,000 years old, is that true? Or has science just uh, refuted that? And that is it just stupid to say that? Another thing is, uh, the Bible says life came from a creator, came from God. Is that true in science? Can we back that up, or does that need to be thrown out? So we're basically putting these things on the table, like the fossil record, the age of the earth, and uh, you know the origin of life and logic, and, and a lot of things that we take for granted, the meaning of life, and we're going to see, does the Bible hold up? Up to science, or does the scientist who is coming on now just going to be able to rip it apart into shreds, and we all need to stop going to church and start going uh, out on Sundays and go fishing or whatever? So I'm giving the guys a call. Welcome to the debate show, and uh, we're going to have a great debate tonight. It is going to be a formal debate, and I'll explain the rules once I get these uh, two wonderful gentlemen here on the phone. And uh, the phone is ringing, as you can hear. We're doing it through Skype. Hello, okay, Mike, are you there? I am here. Okay, and Mr. Rodriguez, David, are you here? Yes, I am. Okay, wonderful. I'm just going to go over the rules and uh, give salutations right now to everybody here, and uh, then we'll get started. All right, guys, this is uh, What Do You Believe? I'm the host and moderator of the debate today, and uh, we're going to be discussing discussing Christian uh, creation versus evolution. And today who we have with us is Mike Riddle, bringing the affirmative, uh, bringing the creation Christian viewpoint. He has his B.A. in mathematics, his master's degree in education. He has worked for Microsoft, Sprint, and NASA, and he has uh, over many years of Christian creation science uh, um, working on his side. He's done it for many years. And uh, he's going to be joining us with us for the Christian science side. Uh, David Rodriguez is a student right now. He is studying biology, and uh, he's at Cornell University, and he has over uh, six years of experience working in labs. And he is going to be bringing the evolutionary side, and uh, he wants to be known as a theist. So he's not an atheist or, uh, or that type of belief, but he's a theist, and he's going to be bringing forth the evolution side. So, gentlemen, I want to thank you for coming. It is so awesome to have you with me on the show and, and every guest out here joining us today. We couldn't do it with you, and you all know what time it is right now. Let's get ready. Let's get ready. Let's get ready to rumble. It's time to get it on. It's time to get it on, baby. We're going to 
don't see where the evidence lies. You don't need a mental hospital. All you need is <laughs> well, hopefully, if you are not already excited and ready for the debate, hopefully that has excited you. <laughs> I try to make this fun, and I try to make it fair. Everybody's like, yeah. Okay, let me go over the rules uh, with the debate, and uh, then I'll uh, let these guys go, because I pretty much already did my introduction. So what they're going to do is start off with 12-minute opening statements, uh, and Mike Riddle, since he's the affirmative, will go first, and then David Rodriguez will go next, 12-minute opening statements. Then after that, each one will have five minutes to rebut the other person's opening statements. Then they'll have three minutes to close up their discussion and to make sense of everything that they've brought out today. And then they will cross-examine one another, and uh, Mike Riddle will go first, cross-examining David Rodriguez and going back from David to Mike. And the rules of the cross-examination, if you haven't participated in a college-style debate, uh, what will happen is the one cross-examining, take, for example, Mike cross-examining David. Mike is only allowed to ask questions. David is only allowed to answer. So Mike cannot make statements while he's cross-examining, and David cannot make rhetorical questions. He has to stay on point, and uh, vice versa. So that is where we're at. I do have a clock out here. And uh, we are ready to rumble. Gentlemen, do you want to say anything before we get started? Uh, anything you want to say? Just let me know right now. I'm ready. Um, just, one, uh, just one point of order. You said theist. Um, I'm sorry if you uh, didn't uh, hear me earlier. I meant to say deist. Okay. Yeah, it can be hard. With a, with a D, not deist as in, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that correction. Yeah. It needs to be corrected. I'm okay. sorry. Thank you. So our friend is a uh, deist, and you can understand with uh, these these type of services like like Skype how I could confuse that. Uh, so thank you for clarifying that, and uh, setting the clock right now. Twelve minutes for the affirmative of Christian Science and Creationism. Mike, you're on. Go. Well, thank you very much, Joan. I'd like to uh, thank uh, Mr. Rodriguez for uh, joining me on this debate. I think they can be very useful at times, and uh, we can get some issues uh, maybe ironed out. And uh, appreciate uh, where you're coming from also, Mr. Rodriguez. Uh, but I'd like to start with uh, some statements. And one, uh, we all have presuppositions, and I, I take the presupposition that the Bible is the God's inerrant word. It is true from beginning to end, starting in Genesis 1-1, where it says, In the beginning God created. I take that as a, uh, as a fact. Uh, the best evidence, uh, I believe, to support that is his word itself, uh, where it starts in 2 Timothy 3.16, for it says all scripture is really inspired by God, so it's God breathed, so scripture comes from God. John 17.17 17 says thy word is truth, so the Bible clearly teaches that it is the word of God and it is true. And then I would go to Romans 1.19 and 20, which tells us that God has given us all the evidence we, we need, and no one has an excuse for not believing in a creator. That means everybody that's ever existed on this planet knows in their heart of hearts there's a creator God. It's just that some people willfully choose to reject that. So I come from that viewpoint there that it is the word of God and it is true. And when it states in Genesis uh, chapter 1 that God created everything in six literal days, I take that as a fact. Uh, that he created in six little days, and the uh, scriptures clearly support that they are literal days. We see that the uh, use of the word day in Genesis 1 is accompanied with word uh, with a number there, first day, second day, third day, and so forth. Uh, 
we see that everywhere in the Old Testament. We see a numbered word day. It only means a day. There are really no exceptions. We also see that the uh, phrase uh, evening and morning, the first day, evening, morning, the second day. So God bounds the day by a uh, beginning and an ending, which tells us that they're days. Uh, so there's multiple evidences right there. We also see that in Exodus 20, verse 11, God writing down on the tablets himself the Ten Commandments. Now, whether we believe some people may or may not believe the Ten Commandments. But the Bible clearly teaches that God wrote the Ten Commandments on the clay tablets. And on commandment number four, he says, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So right there, we have Scripture supporting Scripture. There's many other evidences. For example, words used for time. There are other words in the Hebrew language that could be used for time. Olam could be a long period of time. Eight could be a time in general. But God chose none of those words that can be used for long periods of time, specifically chose the word day. Uh, objection to that might be, well, the Hebrew language is very poetic. And that is true. The Hebrew language is very poetic, but it can also be written in the narrative style. And we can tell the difference. In most all cases, we can tell the difference. For example, if you write a Hebrew sentence and you organize it so that the subject is first, then the verb object, subject, verb, object. That's a poetic style writing in the Hebrew language, such as we see in the Psalms. But if you write a sentence in the Hebrew language and go verb, subject, object, that's narrative style writing. Now, when we actually translate the Hebrew, it reads in this order. In the beginning, created God the heaven. Now, created is the verb. God is the subject. Heaven is the object. So that is clearly written in verb, subject, object, which is narrative form. So Genesis 1 is written in the narrative, meaning it's meant to be taken as real, true history. Also, when you look at the uh, most widely recognized Hebrew lexicons and dictionaries of the 20th century, they all indicate the word day is meant to be a day. So there is, the Bible clearly teaches that uh, the days were days. Now, the Bible teaches it, but not everybody believes the Bible. So we, did God give us any more evidence? Yes, he does. God actually gave us two lines of evidence. He gave us his word, which is our best form of evidence, but he also gave us his creation. Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. So it gave us all the science. In other words, the scientific evidence is overwhelmingly in support of the Bible. Again, as, as the one uh, caller there said, we all have the same evidence. We look at the same bones. We look at the same rocks. We all, do the, we all have the same facts. So what's the difference? Why do we come to different outcomes? Well, it all comes down to our presuppositions. See, evidence, we can go evidence against evidence but we're going to interpret that evidence based on our worldview. My presupposition, again, is that God is the creator of all things. Other people have, have a presupposition that God is not the creator of all things. Everything happened by naturalistic processes. Well, that presents a big problem, I believe. For example, let's take a look at matter. Where did matter come from? From a biblical point of view, in the beginning, God created. He created all the, the material universe. So we have an answer. From an evolutionary viewpoint, we have to ask the question, where did the matter come from? Because we know from nothing, nothing comes. You can't start with the Big Bang. You have to start with the matter first. Then we have the problem of life. How did life originate? From a biblical point of view, we believe that God is the creator of all life. When we look at it from a scientific point of view, there are many problems to the origin of life. It simply cannot be explained in terms of naturalistic processes. For example, when we take... A cell, we just, not even a cell, we just take a protein, just a, just a single protein. What, how does that happen? 
Well, there's some things we need to understand about proteins. One, proteins. They are made up of amino acids. And for those listening, what we get is atoms can make molecules, molecules can make amino acids, amino acids can make proteins. So proteins are almost there. The building blocks of proteins are like the building blocks of life. Now, we, we see these pictures in our textbooks uh, of the Miller experiment where he attempted to create the building blocks of life, not life, but the building blocks of life. And then there Miller created an atmosphere which he believed was the atmosphere billions of years ago. And he put gases in there like methane and ammonia, but he left oxygen out. But he did get amino acids. That's a fact. Miller did get amino acids. But we have to ask the question, why did he leave oxygen out? Well, Miller was pretty smart, he, and uh, there was no problem. He was a very intelligent man, a good scientist. But he knew he had to leave oxygen out because oxygen is like a corrosive. It prevents life from starting. It destroys the molecular bonds. However, the trend in literature and in the, in the research shows that this planet has always had oxygen. The, old, the supposed oldest rocks show signs of oxidation. So there we're not teaching both sides, which gets us into the whole idea of education. Are we really having academic freedom in this country? Are we doing censorship? See, if a book is really teaching science, they need to show all the evidence that there is a trend in the literature for oxygen and freestanding oxygen in the atmosphere, not just go off and wave, wave a magic wand and say there's no oxygen. But you know what happens? If we were to take all the oxygen out, there's a bigger problem because that means we take the ozone away and life can't start there either because the ultraviolet rays of the sun would come down and fry any potential molecules forming life. So life cannot start with oxygen or without oxygen. But could it start in the oceans? Well, that presents another problem, a chemical problem. See, there's a process of water called hydrolysis. Hydro meaning water, hydrolysis meaning water splitting. In other words, life cannot start in water. Any amino acids that might have formed in the oceans within a matter of weeks would have been destroyed. Certainly not enough time for any evolution. So we know life can't start with or without oxygen, and it can't start in water. That's observable and repeatable science right there. That's not based on any assumptions. We can do that in laboratories all the time. But Miller did get amino acids. That's a fact. But what they don't tell us in the textbooks, again, here we come back to education. See, what we're for is academic freedom, not teaching creation, not teaching religion, not teaching intelligent design in the classroom. We are for academic freedom, teaching all the scientific evidence, which the law says we are allowed to do. The, the law says we can teach all the science, both for and against any theory. So why aren't we being allowed to do that? Because people are afraid that the science will disrupt evolution, people believing evolution. In other words, who is really afraid of the science? Not the Christians, but the people believing in evolution. They're fighting to get this evidence out. What evidence that they don't want to be taught? Well, Miller got amino acids, but there's over 2,000 types of amino acids, but only 20 are used in life. Now, here's the problem. These amino acids come in two shapes, left-handed and right-handed. Just like we have a left and right hand, they're not quite the same. Your left and right hand are mirror images of each other. And these amino acids come in the same shape. We typically call them left and right-handed amino acids. They are mirror images of each other. Why is this a problem? Well, it turns out that all amino acids in all proteins in life are left-handed. <clears throat> Folks, we have trillions of these amino acids in them, but every one in every protein is left-handed. Are there any white-handed ones used in life? Yes, there are in certain bacteria, but they're not part of the proteins. They're not, so they're, we don't count those. They're not part of the proteins. Every amino acid in all proteins is left-handed. What did Miller get? 
here's what the textbooks aren't telling us again because they're afraid of the science. They're against academic freedom. What Miller got was 50% left-handed, 50% right-handed. Every experiment since then has almost gotten the same 50-50, which is not life. That's almost the opposite of life. It's like a poison to life. Life requires 100% left-handed amino acids in all proteins. And with experiments we have done, even when we start with left-handed amino acids, it shows, and this is observable science, they have a tendency to go back to a mixture of left and right-handedness. As the natural tendency is always away from life, never towards life. When a person dies, when something dies, it has been shown that the amino acids tend to break up and go back to a mixture of left and right-handedness. No one has been able to figure out why life only has left-handed amino acids in all proteins. That seems to be a great mystery. So at the basic level, we can't even get a protein. And sometimes the argument comes up, well, given enough time, it can happen. But that's not a scientific statement. It's not even a valid statement when you get to probabilities. Now, some evolutionists try and shrug off probabilities. But, folks, when you have more than two possibilities, you have a probability. And biology is built on probabilities. That's a fact of science. We have laws of probabilities, laws of large numbers. One and minute. The probability to get a protein is far greater than the, the laws of probability. So we can't even get a protein. Even in a billion, billion years, we can't even envision getting a protein, let alone a cell. Then there's the bigger problem. If you're going to get a cell, the first thing you really have to have is the membrane, the cell wall, which is a very complicated piece itself. But evolution can't see into the future. So why would it want to make a cell wall and not know what it's going to put in it? Because all that stuff inside, the proteins, the DNA, the RNA, the ATP, all that has to be protected before it can ever get started. So there's some big problems in there for the origin of life. No one's been able to figure that out. Then we have things like the uniformity in nature. Why do we see that? What about moral absolutes? Okay, 10 seconds. Why do we have moral absolutes? What about the laws of logic? How can the evolutionists explain the laws of logic? They use logic all the time to explain why they are law. Are they universal? Okay, or are Mike. they just conventions? Okay. I believe they're laws. Thank you, Mike. That was your 12 minutes. Uh, okay. David, setting the clock for you as um, you prepare for your 12 minutes. Okay, Mike. I mean, uh, David, you are on. Very well. Um, I was listening to Mr. Riddle's argument, and while he does make certain valid points, such as the um, typical longevity of a protein in water while being unprotected, there are plausible explanations as to why these things would happen so. I will try to explain these during my 12 minutes. Now, first off, I would like to point out, as far as presuppositions go, I have a presupposition as far as time. Mr. Riddle claims that the Earth was created in six days, which, or rather the whole universe was created in six days, which I find to be rather bogus. Now, he said in his statements that God's word proves that the Earth was created within these six days. Yet, what he uh, uses to support these claims is God's word itself. He also uses this, uh, he also uses God's word to create a, circ a circular argument where he says that pretty much God's word says that God's word is correct. Therefore, God's word has to be correct. Now, while I do not um, actually look down upon these kinds of arguments, 
it is just that this kind of circular argument does not allow for much room for actual debate. Now, I would like to hear some actual evidence, some physical, tangible evidence as to why the Earth was created in six days, or the whole universe, rather, in six days. But meanwhile, I will try to explain that the Earth has at least 4.5 billion years of existence by using the, uh, by using the isotope of uranium-238. Now, the isotope of uranium has, has a half-life of 4.5 times 10 to the ninth, or 4.5 billion years. In um, any random sampling of uranium um, extracted straight from the ground, this, uh, this isotope will be in a 50-50 mixture, or in, rather, in a very close approximation to a 50-50 mixture, with lead 206. Now, while I understand that you can say rather easily that um, something like this can just be perchance, now, you may also ask as to how or why do we actually know that this um, time period is correct. We do have ways of measuring this, and I will try to, uh, I'll try to go through them and explain them as, as best as I can. Now, we, um, if we take a mole, or um, 6.2 times 10 to the 23rd atoms, of uranium-238, and we allow them to just sit in a room where we will observe them, for a matter of minutes, okay? We will use a Geiger counter to count the number of alpha particles given off by uranium-238. It will give us units as far as um, number of molecules emitted per second, right? So what happens is the Geiger counter will count 3 million alpha particles per second, and over the course of a minute, it will count sufficient alpha particles for you to actually get some sort of detectable raw reading, which you can then, through uh, basic mathematics, extrapolate to get how many particles are released per year. If you take that number of particles released per year, and you want to determine the half-life, in other words, when there's only half a mole uh, uh, 3.1 times 10 to the 23rd atoms of uranium left, you can then divide that number, uh, 3.01 uh, 3 times 10 to the 23rd, by the number that you received at, um, when, you, uh, when you counted the particles. So when you, do this math, uh, when you do this math, you end up with a number incredibly close to 4.5 times 10 to the 9th. And in nature, the reason that you will not see a 50-50 a 50-50 mixture of, of lead with uranium-238 is the fact that lead, or rather uranium, um, breaks down and produces radon as one of its as one of its uh, as one of its uh, one of its as one of its uh, well, it breaks down and produces radon as part of as part of one of the products of its uh, of its uh, nuclear decay. Radon happens to be a gas, and gases can escape from solid matter relatively easily. So there is some loss of material, and therefore there will be some loss of, uh, of lead not being produced. So it will always be skewed towards uranium slightly in um, things we find. Now, we can take samples from all over the world and look at the same exact results. This points out to a 4.5 billion year history of Earth. So... <clears throat> Once we have established that the Earth is at least 4.5 billion years old, we can start to actually talk about what happens during this time. Now, um, Mr. Riddle mentioned the Emil-Urey experiment 
And well, I have to say that he did very, very well in, in uh, tearing into it because Miro Yuri's experiment was not very good. Not to mention that the assumption they made for the uh, Earth's early atmosphere was wrong because they used things like uh, they used an incredibly reduct, uh, reduced atmosphere instead of an oxygen uh, instead of an oxidizing atmosphere, which included things like NO2, CO2, CO, and H2O. They used things such as methane and ammonia, which would just not exist in an, in an early atmosphere because solar radiation, the UV light that he claimed would destroy life, actually does destroy organic compounds. Now, Mr. Miller and Mr. Yuri did provide the first steps towards this new um, idea of an abiotic creation. They provided an experiment which showed, revealed 13 out of the 20 um, amino acids used in living organisms. Moreover, they did get this, um, this difference in chirality and in, uh, and in the racemic mixtures for all molecules. Now, this is expected for random processes. They also produced sugars and lipids. Now, lipids are naturally hydrophobic. They will curl up into balls. This is why the cells have a, a, a lipid, a, 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 the cell wall is a lipid bilayer. It is two layers of lipids where the parts that are hydrophobic, or in other words, don't like water, um, point inward, and the parts that are hydrophilic point outwards, which create this little bubble. Now, with the ability to create things such as sugars and lipids in this early mixture, which wasn't even the correct mixture, mind you, it shows that they were on a very good path towards more modern results. Now, um, an experiment run by uh, Mr. Jeffrey Baffa, which was published in Scientific American around 1997, um, he reports that the um, uh, results are dramatically improved if the water, if A, they use nitrogen gas, NO2, CO2, CO, carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide, and water in the early atmosphere. No oxygen. He shows that he shows that there was an initial problem with this because nitrates would form in the water which would decompose organic matter. He then um, goes on to show that he can, if he adds iron and calcium ions to the water, these iron and calcium ions would become oxidized by the nitrates that are formed and precipitate out removing the nitrates and their detrimental effects to water, which also helps show that there is other explanations as to why the Earth's early atmosphere um, cannot or would not contain oxygen, or it didn't have to contain oxygen in order for there to be fully oxidized minerals at the bottom. If the creation of nitrates, NO3, NO4, is possible, it would show very nicely that oxidation is oxidation of um, minerals is possible, as as well as the creation of all kinds of things from calcium nitrates to calcium uh, to calcium oxides, etc. From these from these reactions. Now Jeffrey um, used this kind of modern atmosphere and also managed to generate all of the same molecules that uh, Yuri and Miller, uh, Yuri and Miller managed to, as well as a lot more uh, a lot of the other molecules that they were not able to see. They mainly managed to produce the amino acid proline, which is an incredibly unique and remarkable. Uh, remarkable and very difficult to produce amino acids. And proline happens to be um, very important in, uh, in life. Now, he stated that biologists do not know where life came from, and that is very true. We do not know how they got from this primordial soup to life. 
but we do have ideas as to how it could have happened. Ideas which are supported by evidence which is either produced in the lab or early fossil records. Though there's very, very little as far as, uh, as far as that goes. A lot of it is actually being, a lot of it, uh, it actually, can actually be uh, still seen in the uh, genetic sequences. Now, the more, the most common theory you uh, normally cited as far as this goes is RNA world. RNA world pretty much, uh, was first proposed by a man named Carl Rosie in the book The Genetic Code. This, um, this book, uh, in this book, he states that RNA is considered to be the best candidate to be the predecessor of biotic life due to its ability to self-replicate and catalyze protein synthesis as well as, his, as well as, as its ability to code information. Now, he tried to make the statement, Mr. Riddle tried to make the statement that proteins would have self-catalyzed. That is completely impossible. In order for a protein to be 100 amino acids long and try a possibility of five configurations per protein, that would, uh, in order for it to uh, manage to achieve a stable configuration in that, in that amount, uh, with, that, uh, with those parameters, it would take it 10 to the 130 uh, years. Now, with, an, with a molecule like RNA to catalyze this production, that time has dropped considerably. Now, the main proof of RNA being a predecessor to DNA is the ribosome. The ribosome is a protein-producing plant in cells. The ribosome is uh, composed in a good portion by our RNA. It's a, it's a type of RNA which is specifically uh, created to produce proteins. Um, a secondary proof in this is when you look at many viruses which have just RNA sequences which are then imported into the genetic code, into, into, the, into the host cells which they are attacking and then uh, transformed into DNA and transcribed into DNA and then, right. So these viruses which use RNA as a means of, of genetic storage 30 seconds. are considered to be among, how many? 30 seconds. 30 seconds. Wow. Okay. So these, these, um, these viruses are considered to be the early predecessors of what is now considered life. They're among the oldest organisms in existence. Now, RNA does have its problems. It, it, it has, once it's creating, it can be self-sustaining. Yet, the model has problems producing RNA because RNA has a, it's a very complex interaction between three different things. Okay. A, nitrog a nitrogen ring. Okay, David, that was time. Uh, I am keeping track here, 12 minutes. Uh, you did a good job, and I know, guys, it's really hard to get it all out. So that's why we're coming back with now the uh, the five-minute rebuttal. And uh, while you were talking, David, we were getting a couple complaints uh, that you were too close to the phone, and it was a little bit more muddled. So can you adjust your phone? We'll just stop right now and just take a second to make sure we can hear you clearly. Uh, can you just uh, maybe pull your phone back a little bit and then give us a, 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 just a 20-second mic check, and we'll make sure you're okay. And I need some guys like, uh, like Atheist at Large and some other guys to make sure you can hear him, hear him good. Okay, go ahead, David. All right. Um, I'm terribly sorry about that, about the phone. I just kind of get uh, really excited, and I use my hands to talk. So... I'm here waving one of my hands around and the other one stuck to the phone, and my phone probably is oscillating back and forth okay. a little too much. Good. Well, we just got the feedback from them. Some other people had said it, so I just wanted to make sure that we were being fair. Okay, uh, Mike, this is uh, your five-minute rebuttal, and uh, it's your turn right now. Okay, some interesting arguments, and uh, you wave your hands, too. I do a call to tie in PowerPoint. That's what we tend to do. We get excited about this. 
But you uh, mentioned my presuppositions. Yes, I do have them, and I do use the Word of God to show the Word of God, and I understand that circular argument, but uh, the evolutionists use the circular argument. They presuppose evolution and then base everything on that. So we both use a form of circular argument, and uh, like you said, that's usable sometimes. Now, you you talked about the age of the Earth, and you used uh, a very uh, interesting explanation of how the process works. But I would like to ask why you ignored the assumptions that are used in there, why you ignored the fact that we're finding enormous amounts of helium in the granite rocks and the zircon crystals, and why you ignored the conflicting dates that we commonly find when we date the same rock by either the same method or different methods. Uh, all we see are, I'd ask you, why, we only see the uh, consistent dates in the textbooks, but the actual records show something very different. I was wondering why you didn't bring that out rather than just do a very detailed explanation of how it works. That's fine. We all agree with how that works. But there are basic assumptions that were ignored in there. Uh, yes, we do know gases escape, and that's exactly right. Helium, the, the lightest of the gases, should escape. But why is it still in there? You ignored that whole process. Why are we finding so much helium there? Uh, I agree with you. The Miller experiment was uh, was a nice try, but it didn't achieve the, the it, he did get amino acids, but it didn't achieve the uh, actual desired results. You uh, ignored uh, uh, several things there. You, uh, towards the uh, you said it's the first steps towards an abiotic origin. That that's completely false. That's absolutely false. Uh, he didn't even get the right amino acids. Yeah, you got 18 of the 20 required amino acids, but they weren't the right handedness. Yes, we can't get sugars or lipids, but uh, there's a big problem there too. We've got to get the handedness. That's the problem that is not being shown. It is not observable. What you basically did was you, you answered based on assumptions and conjectures, and that's what evolution turns out to be, assumptions and conjectures, and you showed my point right there. Uh, we haven't created even a protein. We've got assumptions. We've got conjectures, but we can't do it, and I believe that's where God comes in. Only he could make that. You said... Uh, you made a suggestion that a scientific American, no oxygen, uh, but uh, without the oxygen, we got a sun problem. With the you ignored that day, the uh, ultraviolet rays. Uh, uh, we still have the handedness problem. You failed to tell how this could really take place. Uh, you gave a lot of nice detail, but again, conjecture, and that's what evolution is. Um, we can get amino acids. A lot of experiments have got amino acids. Even before Miller did it, uh, we got them. I and after that, we've got amino acids, but we've never gotten 100% left-handed amino acids. And again, uh, I'd say that's just uh, conjecture. You, you, you admit it, we don't know. You have ideas, but that, again, is based on assumptions. There's no working model to make that work. You talked about an RNA world. Uh, again, an RNA world is even more difficult. Uh, again, you just gave conjecture, but no proof. Again, you're, you're showing my point that what evolution is. It's conjecture and assumptions, but you can't prove anything. So what I would say, what I would like to add in here is when we get to the education system, this is where I really want to point it, the education system. Uh, Mr. Rodriguez, I hope you would agree with me, to teach all the scientific evidence, have academic freedom for our students, all the scientific evidence, not religion, not creation, not intelligent design, allow students to see the pro scientific evidence for evolution and the negative evidence for against evolution. Allow students to critically analyze that. And I think we'll come up with much better scientists to understand the scientific process, understand when things work and when they don't work, and how to go back to the drawing table and try new ideas. That's what we really want to have here. 
So, again, I, I didn't see any proof that you were able to give. Uh, so, And the age of the earth, again, you ignored all the assumptions in there. You ignored the uh, the helium problem that we find. You ignored the fact that carbon-14 is, is found in coal and diamonds at every layer in the geologic column, which is a major problem for the age of the earth. So 4.5 billion years certainly is not a fact. That's just a, a, an assumption. And it's, it's so that cannot be proven. You cannot pr- prove historical science. But the fact is we find carbon-14 in coal. We find it in diamonds repeatedly in all the layers of coal and diamonds in the geologic column. Uh, all that was ignored. Again, I, I commend you for your knowledge of the uh, how the process works, but that ignores all the problems with it. So um, that will be my five minutes there. Good job. All right. Well, we actually got one today ending early. That's beautiful. And I know it's difficult, guys. Trust me, as a speaker, I do understand. Okay, David, it is uh, your turn uh, with the rebuttal. And uh, just setting my, my watch, I should get this by the end of the day. Okay, David, you are on go. Very well. I won't excuse my lack of evidence, mainly because I, I had not actually gotten to it in, my, uh, in what I prepared. I prepared about four pages worth of material to talk to you about, and I only got through the very first page. This was uh, basically just to set, up the, uh, to set up the whole story before I actually started producing any kind of uh, actual uh, evidence. Now, you did mention carbon-14 being found in things such as diamonds and uh, zinconium. Now, the problem with your assumption is that you seem to be from the fact that um, carbon-14 will last nearly indefinitely, even though it has a half-life, but it has a short half-life, because you're talking about something which, if you have a large enough quantity of it at its, uh, at its conception, it will persist because half-lives are an exponential decay. Um, and I'm sure you, being a math major, can see these growth uh, kinds of functions just approach zero. They never actually get to zero. Now, well, I understand that there's a logical fallacy because you get to a point where you just can't keep splitting an atom in half. It just seems more and more unlikely that, the, uh, rather, the longer the, the period of time that you have carbon-14, the more, um, rather, the less that disappears per half-life. So the process just slows itself down completely. Now, I'm not saying that that helps explain all the carbon-14, mainly because I have not seen this data and um, I cannot actually uh, make any kind of reasonable comments on it, but that would be my take on it as probably the most basic explanation of uh, it's an exponential decay function, and you're losing um, a lot of it. Uh, yeah, you're losing uh, you're losing very little uh, in correspondence to the amount of time that it's being uh, lost. Now, as far as you're saying to RNA world, that's exactly what I was going to get to. RNA world does not prove anything. It just proves that there, there was something, or it claims that there was something before DNA, which is very probable. Now, what I was going to actually continue on to saying is that there are far more molecules for information storage which are currently being uh, shown that can be proven in prebiotic conditions. Now, you say that life cannot exist on the surface, and that is very true. I completely agree with you. The lack of oxygen in the ozone. Um, UV light is going is is to penetrate and destroy everything more or less, you know, 20 feet below the surface. Now, the, now the problem which you seem to be ignoring is the fact that thermal vents are thriving with creatures, and they've been thriving with creatures for as far as we know. The oldest, uh, the oldest like, uh, bacterial um, microorganisms or bacterial-like microorganisms is the archaebacteria or archaea. Now, archaea happen to be the most extreme of all organisms, some of them existing in water up to 90 degrees Celsius, others 
um, existing in temperatures far below, uh, far below freezing, some of them being able to persist and consume things such as sulfur, iron, reducing, uh, reducing these things. Um, they have various niches. Some of them can even exist in salt concentrations as high as 30% solution of, of NaCl. I mean, that, that's incredibly ridiculous for, a, for any kind of, a, for any kind of living organism. These, these, these creatures show the vast versatility of life, and they also are very good indicators as to what could have been the first things. The early Earth is a, an incredibly dangerous period. Heaven forbid, no creature in existence uh, basically no creature of existence right now, no higher organism, of course, could survive in those early conditions. The ocean temperatures were consistently 80 degrees or higher. The massive bombardment that was, that was occurring at very, very early stages of Earth's history is a uh, testament. Kinetic energy from those, uh, from those impacts would vaporize entire oceans from time to time. These, these are very, very volatile conditions. And these organisms would need the most extreme kinds of things. DNA and RNA are not capable of surviving in, the, in those conditions. This is why we've been looking for other molecules which are able to con uh, contain information. And so far, the best one would be what we call PVA, which is actually, uh, which is actually basically a protein backbone to a, um, it's a peptide, it's peptide nu uh, nucleic acid. That's what it actually stands for. And it's pretty much a protein backbone. It does not have the negative charge which either uh, RNA and DNA have. It is pretty much set up just like an amino, uh, just like um, amino acids that create proteins, just that instead of having the amino residue, or rather the, the residue that an amino acid normally would, it has a nucleic acid. And these, and these things which have been generated are incredibly robust. They can survive all kinds of pH and um, 15 all seconds. kinds of pH changes. If they can survive incredibly high temperatures. They start to denature at around 110 degrees Celsius. They are um, they act almost exactly like DNA at those high temperatures, around okay, 90 degrees Celsius and higher. Okay, these that's are, the time. These uh, these molecules. Okay, I'm sorry, David. I was uh, just trying to take instant messages, and I didn't give you your minute warning. But uh, if, if you want to uh, conclude with uh, another 15 seconds, I'll let you do that since I didn't give you uh, the right. minute warning. Go ahead and just, just take 15 okay. seconds and finish up. These molecules are things that we're currently doing active research on, and we hope to be able to find things that are convincing. We are not claiming to have all the answers, but we are claiming to be working on them without some sort of kind of divine intervention. Okay, and that would be it for the rebuttals. We are doing great. Guys, you are doing awesome uh, and, and hanging out, man. You guys are great. Thank you for being on the chat lines and just keeping it cool and bringing out information and all that good stuff. Uh, what we're going to do now is we're going to give them three minutes to kind of conclude what they have said tonight and, and what they see the big picture as being, and then we're going to move to what I think is my favorite part, which is the cross-examination. So, uh, Mike, it's uh, your turn with the, the procreation side to, uh, to bring... Uh, your points to a conclusion right now. So you've got three minutes. Okay. Once again, I would take the word of God because uh, it does give an explanation, does tell us where matter came from. That was ignored. It does tell us where life came from. All I heard were still conjectures and uh, RNA, which is just a claim. He admitted that. Talked about uh, bacteria and being very robust, uh, but still got to get the life started. That still gets ignored. We're skipping millions of steps in there. 
He, I appreciate uh, uh, Mr. Rodriguez on the fact he said he hasn't heard about the uh, and admitted he hadn't heard about the carbon fourteen. Yeah, and uh, it's fully known. Yes, I do have degrees in math, and I do know it never probabilities never approach zero. However, there were measurable amounts of carbon fourteen measured in there at all levels. And I don't know what the half-life is, 5,730 years, but there were measurable amounts, datable amounts of carbon-14 found in the coal and diamonds, which should not be in there. It was just not a, a incidental residue. The maximum Danny range would be about 80,000 years. I understand that, too, with our modern techniques. But, uh, no, there was too much significant amount of carbon-14 found in diamonds and coal, and that presents a major, major problem, uh, which agrees with the Bible, that things just aren't that old. Uh, he said... Uh, uh, you still ignored uh, you ignored the stuff on radioisotopes, the uh, the assumptions that were made in there. But you went to the RNA world. There are many problems. Uh, you have to have enzymatic, uh, and I know some uh, some of the RNA may have had some enzymatic, but it was very simple. It would take a lot of uh, intelligent design engineering to really get it going. We've never seen it get to start, uh, get it going by itself. Um, there's incredible amounts of uh, information. You, know, you did use the word information. Uh, I'd like to know uh, what your definition of it is, and where does information come from? I don't know if I've ever seen information uh, coming from random chance processes, complex codes. Uh, you, you made statements like the ocean temperature is 80 degrees or higher. How do you know that? Uh, we weren't there. That's, again, an assumption conjecture. Uh, very volatile uh, conditions back then. How do you know that? We weren't there. Uh, we do know there were volatile conditions sometimes, volcanic activity. But uh, I would go with the Word of God seconds. over uh, assumptions and conjecture because uh, I think the Word of God has answers. And I think it offers hope, tells me where the matter came from, tells me how life got started, and it also tells me what's going to happen when I die. It tells me about the laws of logic. It's the only place I get the laws of logic. It tells me about uh, why we have moral absolutes, and those are two very big, big, big things there because everybody likes to use logic. You use logic very well. I commend you on that, but where does that come from? Is it, uh, again, is it universal, or is it just a convention in our minds? Because uh, it seems to be the same everywhere. Why do we have moral absolutes? Why is killing wrong? I think only the Bible can answer those questions. I think if you're going to use that from an evolutionary viewpoint, I think you would have to borrow from the Bible if you really want to say there is evil and you don't like certain parts of evil. So I would go with that, that, uh, that we do have hope in Jesus Christ. And... Uh, and he made that statement that there's only one way. So, yes, there's different religions, but uh, they're not all the same. Okay, that's uh, time. I know a lot of religions accept evolution, but the Bible is distinctly different from evolution. It's okay. only one way, and that's through Jesus Christ. Awesome. Okay, that is time. Uh, David, you got your three minutes. And uh, since it's only three minutes, I'm going to uh, let you know when it's 30 seconds. Okay, David? All right. Okay, go ahead. Okay. As Mr. Riddle stated, there are obvious um, inconsistencies with most modern theories in biology, but that's because we don't claim to actually know everything. We seem to be working to this. We seem to be experimenting continuously, refining our knowledge. This is, this, is, this is the thing with science. There is no absolute. There is no final word. It is a constant refining and a constant working towards striving towards finding this truth. It's not handed to us on a silver platter. We are actually working for it. It is how we go about finding this truth that, it, that makes it different from a religion. We base, this, we base what we consider truths to be a matter of observation. We consider these truths 
to be based on numbers and uh, and mathematical models and biological models, chemical models, everything. Well, you may claim that there are holes, there are inconsistencies, things which we cannot uh, which we cannot um, actually um, explain at this moment, but we will hopefully be able to explain at some point and for it all to be um, wrapped up nicely. Now, the theory of, of or the belief in a god is a very interesting concept because it wraps everything up already. There is no way to, uh, to actually argue against uh, this kind of thought because it's basically self-sustaining. Pretty much how he claims that evolution is self-sustaining. Now, to a certain degree, I am not claiming, I am claiming that evolution happens. It is a natural prophecy. Its existence is nearly undeniable. I never got to actually explain as to why I believe that, but I will, I will not try uh, with the amount of time I actually have left, but I believe evolution to be an inherent existence of all existence. Everything evolves, everything changes through time, and these changes through time, these minor adaptations accumulate over time. Um, well, he, um, he's gotten me on several points. I can honestly say that as far, uh, my knowledge of uh, radioactive isotopes is as far as, uh, as what I know about uranium. He still does not deny why we do see uranium having having its half-life, and why its half-life is very, uh, very visible, and it's uh, consistent. He explains that there are consistencies in the carbon, but he doesn't explain as to why uranium would be consistent. Now, I see this as a much larger problem than um, with carbon, because carbon, um, I don't even know how to actually explain the fact that there's carbon, but that's because I don't know enough about the, uh, about the actual um field, it's not my field, but he is unable, to, he, he has not actually touched on why the uranium actually exists, and why uh, proceeds to have such a small Okay, three life. minutes. Okay. Uh, there we go, guys. There it was. Opening statements, rebuttal, and conclusion. Now, here is where we get to the good part. This is going to be the cross-examination. One more time, this is how it works. What is going to happen here is Mike is going to start off. He is going to ask a question, not a long, drawn-out question with rhetorical questions, making statements. He's just going to ask a simple question. It should be 15 to 30 seconds max. Then David is going to have the opportunity to respond in a few minutes, not rambling, not going off the subject, and nor asking a question back. This is then going to allow the questioner, Mike, to keep asking questions and to make his point through the questions. Then after the seven minutes, David will then have the same opportunity to do that same process with Mike, and Mike will have to stay on subject, and David will have to stay asking questions. Okay, so speakers... Uh, let's try not to speak over each other. So uh, if you hear the other one speaking, you can use something like a phrase like, are you finished, or I'll wait till you're finished. And uh, the one being asked the question, I know it's difficult in this position to say everything you have to say, but for the sake of time, please try to be uh, specific, blunt, and to the point. Okay, Mike, uh, you have seven minutes to cross-examine David. Go. Seven minutes? Yes, you do. Okay. I would like to, uh, again, uh, go back and ask the question about the origin of matter. I've, I've asked that several times. Uh, the first law of thermodynamics teaches that uh, the universe couldn't create itself. The second law says it could not have been eternal matter. So I'd like to ask the question from a uh, materialist uh, point of view. 
where does the matter come from, since we know nothing cannot create something? I believe it has to be a creator of God who is transcendent from this creation. So I would like to have an answer for that one. Where does matter come from? In my personal view, matter comes from a divine creator who does not believe in um, intervening and creating, uh, or rather, he doesn't believe in intervening with his creation. He set in motion the laws of physics, the laws of astronomy, the laws of all the sciences, and they, he just let the universe go. Now, that's my personal belief. What science will say is that they're not sure, that they don't have enough evidence, that they don't know what what is what's happened at the Big Bang. Now, I personally am not an astronomer. I don't claim to be an astronomer. I know very little about astronomy, and I can't give you an answer as far as what science would say. Okay. I, uh, again, I, I, I think you're, you're good there. We can't give an answer. Neither can any other astronomer give that answer, so you're correct on that. But you did say divine creator. I'd like to know who this divine creator is. Is, is it just something you made up in your mind, or is it uh, the, the biblical creator, or who is this creator? Um, this creator, in my belief, your belief. This creator, so, uh, yeah. This. Are you so done? It's just your belief. How do I find out about him? Right. How do you find out about him? Well, I believe from what I observe and what I see. I believe personally that this universe could not have been set in motion randomly, as you state. I believe that it had to be set in motion in some other way. I believe that we are nothing more than just some alternate or some random universe which exists. We were butted off of from another universe. Now, I cannot prove this. Just the same way that you cannot prove the existence of your God without, without using your own beliefs in your own faith. Okay, I have a record of who my God is in the Bible. Where can I find out about your God? Or is it just something we um, conjure up in our minds? Your God, the same exact thing can be said about your God. It just could be conjured up in the human minds. The humans who wrote that would, uh, are very capable of writing a self-sustaining document, document which says this document is true. Anybody can write a document like that and claim to be inspired by God. Do you have a document for your God? I don't need a document. I don't, I don't believe in some sort of organized religion. You don't believe in any organized religion. No, I don't believe in, in, I don't, I know there's organized religions, but I don't accept religions. Just, I accept Christianity, which is a relationship. Just questions, Christ, Mike. not a religion. Mike, just questions. Okay. Um, so we, we don't have an answer. How about the laws of logic? You use logic. Uh, could you explain to me where the uh, logic comes from? Is it universal, or is it uh, something that we, a convention made up in our minds? Um, logic, I believe, is a... Logic is a byproduct our, of our immense brains. No other creature is capable of logic, at least from as far as the literature as I have read. Um, it is the ability of humans, which has come from the evolution of our massive brains. So, therefore, they're not universal. So, what one person thinks is logical, so logic has no real universal laws or anything, is what you're saying. Like the law yes, of identity it is. That's or the exactly law of what I'm saying. What I find. What I find, sorry. So they're just a convention. There, there's no universal. Logic is not uh, universal. Then is what you're saying. 
logic and morality are not universal. What I find to be logical and what I find to be moral can be very different from what you find to be logical and from what you find to be moral. The definition of insanity is something that is always giving me a hard time. I, I cannot believe that you can say that one person's way of thinking is very different from another person's way of thinking. So or it's not the same. It's not the same. So what you're saying is um, there's no moral absolutes then, so uh, would you condemn Hitler? Would you condemn serial killers? With my own personal belief, I would. With my own personal what's your, belief. That's what, what do you base that on then? What do you base that on? What do I base that on? I base the fact that people who actually go out of their way to commit harm for their own pleasure are just not fit for for existence in society. Society is a contract between all human beings in which we all agree to obey a set of laws in order to provide a better and less animal-like life amongst no, creation. That sounds or like amongst, you're imposing uh, your ideas on other people now. You're imposing your ideas. What about people who get uh, joy out of killing, joy out of torturing people? Why would you say they're evil when their ideas to themselves, they're, they're getting joy out of that? Like Marquet decides. I am not saying you... I am not saying they are evil. I am saying that they are not fit to function in our society. That's the only thing I'm saying. I never made mention of the words good or evil. I never said that Hitler was good or evil. I said that Hitler is not fit to function in the society which humans have created for themselves. What do you um, humans created for themselves? Uh, so you're saying it's society or an individual who set these rules, whether fit or not. How do you determine whether somebody's fit or not? What 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 is your criteria? Society says it's I don't Germany. define this. Well, society was in Germany and they said it was fine. Why would you condemn them? You have what's your reasoning for condemning them? What's your reasoning for condemning uh, Arabs who like to slaughter people? Mike, I'm going to interject. I think it's the right thing to do. Mike, I'm going to interject. I'm just going to ask you. Have, you have one more minute. Can you ask your last question with science? Because I think the matter and logic question has been established on your side. Uh, hearing as the moderator, I think he came as a scientist. Can you bring one last proof of creation versus evolution uh, science to him? You have one one question left. Okay. I, w I would like to ask the question uh, on the uh, mechanism for change. Uh, we, we know that uh, most... All no mutations are detrimental or neutral, and the, uh, any positive ones are in the non-selection zone, just really won't be selected that much. There's, we need millions and millions of beneficial mutations that end information. Selection does not work at the nucleotide level. It works at the whole phenotype or group level. So what would be the mechanism for all this alleged change from uh, amoeba to man, since it's well-known selection and uh, uh, works not the way we see in textbooks? Normally, um, you're looking at a rate of mutation um, uh, of about one single change in a nucleotide, nucleotide for every 500,000 nucleotides. That's that's the average rate of change under the current atmosphere under the current atmosphere in humans. Now, when you're talking about several billion nucleotides, three billion in humans. You're talking about quite a bit of change. Now, if they're harmful, like you said, they'll get removed. If they're beneficial and not present in a gamete, they won't show up. If they're beneficial and present in a gamete, or rather, if they're beneficial and not present in a gamete, they won't show up. If they're beneficial and present in a gamete, what will happen is the, the offspring will then have to compete with other, with other organisms. Now, it might seem very difficult for you to actually understand that 
something so small, such a uh, random change, is, you know, rather completely inoffensive. It's such a small number. But when you factor it in, once again, over the period of time which we claim the Earth has existed, it becomes an incredibly serious thing, particularly when we, uh, when we talk about that life has existed for 3 billion years. And the rate, of, the rate of mutation in bacteria is far larger than it is in humans. And the lower the organism, the far more, um, the far more able the genetic material is actually able to travel. In plants, in plants you can have three, four, five copies. You can have a, uh, an incredible polyploidy in a plant and they'll just produce different species. Can we just go to statement? Harmful mutations okay. removed. That is absolutely false statement there. The record of mutations is about one beneficial to about 10,000 neutral. Excuse me, Mike. He gave you permission, but I need to make sure that he understands. Uh, David. Okay, you, I'm sorry. That, that's okay, I, David. I apologize for that, Dad. That, that's okay, David. You still have seven minutes to cross-examine. I let you go long in the, in the answer to his question because he went a few moments over in his last question. You can That's either A, go to your cross-examine now, which I would do if I were you, or you can B, take on his question that he's asking you. It's up to you. It's your choice. I will go on to my cross-exam. Okay. It is your cross-examination. Uh, seven minutes starting now. Okay, Mr. Riddle, I believe that you claim that you work in NASA. Is that correct? No, I've taught at NASA. You taught at NASA. Taught, uh, what did you teach at NASA? I taught one of their scientists. I taught the origin of life. In, at you taught the origin of, of life. Astrobiology, at the Institute of Astrobiology. Mm -hmm. NASA did, uh, do, you, do you have any familiarity with astronomy at all? A little bit, yes, I do. Okay. Do you I know the theories about the... You work for the astrophysicist. Do you know the theory of heavy bombardment in the early, in the early creation of the solar system? Early creation. What about the early creation of the solar system? Do you do you have you heard of the theory of heavy bombardment? Yes, I have. Very well. So you do realize that this theory states that there were large, large rocks on the order of 10, 15, 20 kilometers, even larger in some cases, that came and struck the Earth, right? Well, how do you know that? That's a conjecture there, again. That's an assumption. You can't ask a question, observed. Mike. Mike, you can't ask the question. You have to answer. And answer in such a way, I guess, to make your point. So you are denying the impact craters that have scarred both the Earth and the Moon, which show so, clear uh, evidence. So you're not. So you do then admit the fact that these kind of that this kind of heavy bombardment did it did happen. On the Moon, yes, we see it on one side of the Moon, but not that much on the Earth. Do you believe that the atmosphere had anything to do with that? Do you believe in erosion? Yes, I firmly believe in erosion. We see it today. Very well. So do you not believe that the erosion would have had time to remove these kinds of stars or lessen these stars on the planet Earth? They could have removed some, but uh, that would have removed many other things, too. What uh, have you heard of the series of... Go ahead. Have, have you... There would, have, there would have been no fossils... Um, because, all right, I'm not going to get into that. So, do you, believe, do you have you heard of the theory about the creation of the moon? Creation of the moon? I've heard of uh, some assumptions on the creation of the moon and some ideas on the creation of the moon, but there seems to be many problems. Have you, particular, have you heard of the theories about the creation of the moon, which states that the moon was created by a Mars-sized object smashing into the planet Earth? 
Um, yes, I've heard of that one. Very well. So, assuming that an object the size of Mars, which is about one quarter the size of Earth, hit Earth, what would, what kind of what kind of effects would you actually expect from that kind of collision? Uh, we certainly wouldn't expect the moon to be there. We probably wouldn't expect the moon to be here anymore either. But uh, go why, ahead. Why would you? Why would you? Uh, why would you believe that the moon would not be here? What would cause the moon to be there? Since it's made out of different uh, components in the Earth, the different chemicals in the Earth. All right. As far as why would the Earth not be here? That's a pretty big object to hit the Earth. You, you know what happens when something the size of a football hits the Earth? That's pretty massive. Absolutely nothing. Something the size of a football hits the Earth. It's very. It's a pretty big hole. It's a pretty good sized hole. In, we're, when we're ahead. talking about something the size of Mars hitting the Earth. We're overcoming the binding energy of the planet Earth. In other words, the planet Earth would have broken up. Now, can we can can you even begin to calculate the amount of kinetic energy that would have uh, that would have occurred in a kind of collision of this sort? Right? It's going to be immense. So, would something that size not have completely melted the planet? If it happened, it could have done a lot of things. Yes. Well, the theory states that the planet was completely melted and part of the planet splashed out into, uh, splashed completely out. This, this kind of, this kind of, uh, this kind of hit or this kind of impact, what it would have done would have been caused the complete, um, separation of the planet as we see it now with an iron nickel core and the, uh, layering based on densities of, of the actual material. Sounds like, so, sounds like you've observed you, that. Um, no, I'm actually not proposing that. I'm gonna ask okay. you a question on it. Okay. So, um, given the fact that an impact like this would wipe the surface completely clean, it would cause a whole bunch of chemical reactions, which would not be which would not be seen, uh, or which cannot be actually seen here or reproduced here on Earth because we can't reproduce these kinds of uh, these kinds of reactions. Is it or is it not possible that we can create something like the Moon, which is pretty much um, like pumice, in other words, like volcanic uh, excess? So, okay. Is it or is it not possible? That's what I'm asking. Uh, to create volcanic, to have something crash into the earth and create a moon? Is yes. that your question? Yes, that is my uh, question. I don't know. I've never seen it happen. Nobody else has seen, seen it happen. It's strictly conjecture. Very well. Um, I believe I have no more questions for you. Are you sure? Because you have... You have two minutes. If you would like to uh, go to another subject, you have two more minutes. Right. Who has um, two minutes? He does. Okay. I do. Okay. I do. I have two minutes. Very well. You also said that first. We're going to continue on the fact that you work for, uh, with uh, NASA. What are your What are your personal beliefs about the redshift that is observed in most objects? Redshift. Oh, there's a definite redshift uh, of uh, starlight, which has caused. Uh, by the uh, recession of the uh, stars moving away from the galaxies and stars. However, uh, it does give an appearance that the universe is expanding, and I have no problem with that. Uh, the Bible does say God stretched the, the heavens out. But what, we, what has been known for almost 25 years now is this redshift comes in, in, quant, in, in quantized uh, packets there. Words, what we see about the redshift is it comes in light in intervals. We should see it all up and down the light spectrum, the red side of the light spectrum, but we don't. See, when we look at the redshift, we see it only comes in 
approximately one million light-year intervals spiritually around us. That is well known. It's been well publicized that uh, that's what we see. Uh, only in as one million light-year intervals around us. Now, in order to see that, the only known explanation is that our galaxy has to be within one million light-years of the center of the universe. Now, we're not talking about geocentricity. What I'm talking about is the only known way to see these concentric circles based on the redshift is that we have to be near the center. Now, the postulates of the Big Bang are, there's three main postulates, which a lot of uh, basic astronomers don't know, but when you get to the higher astronomy classes, they teach this very well, is that the universe has no center, it's homogeneous, and there's no special place. Well, the fact that we can see this, and it was first discovered by astronomers that were evolutionists, and now is well documented, is that there is a special place, and we're near it. So the redshift has just destroyed the tenets of the Big Bang and everything else built upon it. So I'm glad you brought the red shift up there. That's a uh, very big problem well, for the evolution. My follow-up uh, question to the red uh, shift okay. is that... Uh, you... uh, David, that, that would be well over seven minutes, and it was kind of even that way because he had a long last uh, answer like you had a long last answer, so I think we're even. And uh, that is the end of the official debate. So everybody, thank you for standing by and having a good time on the chat log. And uh, now... I'm going to ask our two debaters, because uh, I know most of the people in the chat room and myself, we could do this till 3 in the morning, but uh, they both made a consensus at, at the beginning that they would have to uh, get up early tomorrow and end the debate around this time. So I'm going to pose the questions to you guys again, Mike and David. Once again, I also want to say thank you. You guys did an awesome job, and I was really I impressed. Thank you, Mr. Rodriguez. I really appreciate it, and I think you did a good job there. Awesome. Uh, Mr. Riddle, I'd like to thank you as well. You did a fairly decent job. I thoroughly enjoyed this. Beautiful. I did, too. And, uh, wish you the best on your studies and look forward to seeing more about you later. Great. Oh, very, uh, very much the same. Great. Uh, God bless Okay, hold on before you, hold on, hold on, Mike. Before you hang up, uh, I wanted no, I'm to not see. Hang up yet. Okay, that's what I was going to see. I, I love you guys. You guys are fun. Um, and definitely, I am the least scientist guy in the whole room, and so it's fun just me moderating here. I was actually taking very, uh, very good notes this time because uh, atheist at large kind of cracked on me, and he said I had no idea what was going on at parts of the other debate, and he is tr he was right, and I made sure to 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 do this. Um, this is what I would like to ask. These guys have waited patiently in the uh, the chat room. I know they have questions. Guys, can you stay for at least another 10, 15 minutes and let some of these guys give questions? Can I get a yes uh, or no from Mike and David right now? Can you guys do that for them? I can I can do about 30 minutes. Okay, you can make it an even 11. Uh, you've been here a little bit longer than him, Mike. Can you make it an even 11, 12 your time, or do you want to make it shorter than that? Sure. Okay. I do that. Okay. Awesome. Well, we'll go to now you guys in the chat room. Once again, we do not do this without you. Otherwise, we'd be talking to ourselves. So what I'm going to do is just put on a, some music in the background. And uh, please put your questions out there. And uh, it, it, it looks like I'm getting some already. I'm trying to read them as I go through this. Um, let's try to stick on the subject, though. I know it, the subject is so broad. But uh, can somebody put something else out there other than just uh, what I see right now is attacking? Uh, can you just put a question out there that wouldn't be me reading it, attacking one of our speakers? I wouldn't do that to, uh, to David, and I certainly won't do that to Mike. So can we put out a question that is neutral in the person that we're talking about here? 
Okay. Um, here's a good question. Mike, you'll get uh, two to three minutes, and then as well as uh, David to respond after he asks it. Here we got Robbie, 1983. He's asking the question to Mike. Mike, do you believe that man coexisted with dinosaurs? And I'll put on there, if so, can you give us evidence? Uh, yes, I firmly believe that man coexisted with dinosaurs. One, the Bible teaches that. On day six, God created Adam and Eve, uh, people, and he also created the land animals, which would be dinosaurs. Job chapter 40, 40 verses 15 through 18, talk about a creature called, called behemoth. Describes it as uh, a large plant-eating creature, a large tail, big bones, and the chief of the ways of God. Now, that's not a hippopotamus, not an elephant. Is it a dinosaur? Well, we don't know because we weren't there to see it, but the description is very similar to that of a dinosaur. Now, the scientific evidence, where we find uh, many legends, and you've got to take it for granted what legends might be, but we have many legends of creatures called dragons. So certainly, we wouldn't call them dinosaurs because the word dinosaur was not invented until 1841 by Sir Richard Owen. But we also find petroglyphs on canyon walls of dinosaur-looking creatures. They certainly don't look like any creature today. These people did not have cell phones to communicate this, so how did they know to draw these kind of creatures? We have found uh, pictures in the, in the Carlisle Cathedral over in the northern England. Uh, uh, Bishop Usher, there's a, a grave in, there, in the uh, cathedral there, and uh, going around his grave are very clear pictures of dinosaurs. And, that was uh, done in the late 1400s, so uh, that's well before we knew about dinosaurs. We didn't know much about dinosaurs until the 1800s. We have found soft tissue on uh, dinosaurs now, more than just one. We found it on about a dozen dinosaurs, soft tissue, uh, flexible, and able to squeeze out microscopic structures. Uh, certainly soft tissue is not going to last for uh, 65 million years by any known process. I represent by any known process. That's the same thing evolution to say. There's, there's some unknown process that preserves soft tissue for 70 million years. Same thing I just said. We don't know what could preserve it. We don't believe it can be preserved for 70 million years, so we believe it's very recent. So uh, we, I believe that the, the scientific evidence confirms that. And the other part of the question is, these whole dinosaurs, where did they come from? I go to museums all over the world looking textbooks. All I see are dinosaurs. I don't see the millions of creatures that led up to the dinosaurs. So you have to establish the, the question, where did they come from? And there's no factual evidence that a meteor killed about 65 million years ago because even the evolutionists are now starting to contradict that. Uh, one page in the textbook says they died out 65 million years ago by a meteor. Then they turn the page and says they all changed into birds, which is biophysically impossible. So which story really is it? So the evolutionists present a pretty confusing uh, part there. But I take the biblical view and the scientific view that they did that long. Okay. Uh, that was... That was uh, about two and a half minutes. Go ahead, David. Uh, did dinosaurs coexist with man? Coexist with man. I'm going to have one question first. I want to know which uh, chap. What, what exactly he quoted as far as Job goes? Job chapter forty, verses fifteen through eighteen. For Job forty, verses fifteen through eighteen. Okay. Well, I'm going to start off by saying that um, he's just trying to confuse you with. Rather, what's unclear biological um, uh, linguistics. The dinosaurs did not change into birds one over a day. No. The dinosaurs and birds had actually split apart by late Jurassic. That is considered in um, biological senses to be about 100 million years, 120 million years before the actual extinction of, of the, um, of the, of the so-called land-based uh, dinosaurs. Now, 
In all technicality, I cannot deny the fact that uh, humans are currently coexisting with dinosaurs because birds are dinosaurs. Birds are the direct descendants of the therosaurs, the dinosaurs like the Tyrannosaurus rex, the Velociraptor, the um, uh, the Mastodon. These creatures, which have very, uh, which have basically the same hip structure as birds, which have the same overall body design as birds, and for which we have actually found evidence, fossil evidence of feathered creatures. We could even found fossil evidence of feathers on T-Rex. Now, these creatures, while they do not exactly prove anything, they strongly suggest that there is a link that these birds and these dinosaurs share too much in common for the just chance that they both happen to have developed independently, particularly when you start considering the fact that a lot of dinosaurs were warm-blooded. Now, dinosaurs being warm-blooded and birds being warm-blooded, and this is where dinosaurs actually differentiate a lot from um, from the uh, this is where <clears throat> this is where dinosaurs actually differentiate a lot from reptiles because reptiles are cold-blooded, as we all know, and most dinosaurs are believed to be warm-blooded. The fact that they have feathers tends to point that way because there would be no reason for them to have feathers otherwise. If they were cold-blooded, feathers would do absolutely nothing for them. And if they were warm-blooded, it would actually keep the small dinosaurs, the ones that actually had feathers for the most part, would keep them warm. Very large dinosaurs, much like elephants and, and blue whales, don't need to be covered by hair to keep warm and to regulate their, uh, their body temperature. Their massive size produces enough energy through metabolism to keep uh, a, high, a high temperature. Now, these creatures then would actually need ways to cool off, much like the elephant has um, long ears or large ears, and the whale lives underwater. These creatures uh, developed or um, evolved to have large necks and tails in order to uh, create more surface area to allow for more heat transfer into the into the air. Now, um, okay, Dave, that's about uh, two and a half, three minutes. That's about equal time. Can I say anything to that? Because there was not one piece of scientific truth in what he said, other than reptiles are cold-blooded. It's Everything up to you guys. Everything else was absolutely wrong. If you guys don't mind talking a little bit, I'll try to moderate it. Is that okay, David? You out, you want to go sure. back and forth uh, on that? It's up to David. Sure, sure, sure. I'll hear Okay. Birds are dinosaurs. Where is the evidence for that? You said they had the same hip structures. One, you just contradicted every evolutionist, because there's bird hips and lizard hips, and actually the evolutionists believe they evolved from the lizard hips, not the bird hips. Read your own literature there on that one. Uh, feathers on T-Rex, that's absolutely wrong. If you read the actual literature, we have not found feathers on any T-Rexes. The biggest example that we found feathers on was the Archaeoraptor out of National Geographic, which turned out to be a great fraud. Somebody uh, uh, pasted some things on there, drew them on there. So that was absolutely wrong. Uh, there's still a lot of debate on whether dinosaurs were warm-blooded or cold-blooded, so you can't say anything absolute there. So you've said a lot of stuff, but uh, it was all wrong science, absolutely. How did birds become dinosaurs? Uh, that's biophysically impossible. Have you thought about all the changes that have to take place? Small changes do not lead to large changes. That's just against all known genetics. Almost all known mutations are detrimental or neutral. There's not enough positive mutations that have been recognized to even have that kind of change. And a bird, as a dinosaur is changing a bird, while it's halfway there, can't do its previous function, can't do its new function, it's dead in the water. And why would a dinosaur become a bird? Just because it wanted to flap its arms and jump off of trees? 
Okay, they, let David respond. With better science than that. Okay, let David respond. Uh, to, he says there's no evidence of that. The reports you're saying are not verified. They've been proven false. David, uh, it's your turn. Okay, very well. As far as the Arthropteryx, there are several different actual skeletons of Arthropteryx. You can go to the Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C., in uh, New York, in London, in, um, I believe, Berlin, and you can see them, all four of these, found at different periods uh, throughout human history. And you'll see that these all have clear markings. Now, go ahead and run a Google search, or even better, go ahead and run a search in Scientific America and look up feathered dinosaurs. You will get quite a few hits, including several of them which are found in China, and you will even find, you'll even find hits as far as uh, T-Rexes with feathers. Now, I want, you said that I can't prove this. I want you to prove me wrong. I want you to show me where the proof is that says that small changes do not produce large changes. You're trying to prove it with logic. If one small change, if one small detrimental uh, change can, uh, can have a large effect as to have a difference between life and death in one organism, similarly, one, good, one simple change can improve the functionality of a protein can improve efficiency in some way or in, or in some form. These small changes accumulate over time. That's the key. The one, thing that you're, the one thing that you keep denying is the fact that this time exists. If you assume that time has, uh, there has been 3 billion years, you can, uh, you can see that these small changes will accumulate over time. What seems to be something on the order of 1 million or, or 10,000, I don't remember exactly what you said about the ratio of good to bad mutations, over a billion years, if you have um, a massive condition, a large number of these things actually uh, appearing throughout throughout uh, throughout history. Okay, first of all, you you I want to make sure you I think you understood, but you you just made the wrong statement. Archaeoraptor is the one that they found in China that was proven a fraud. What you, I think you're referring to is Archaeopteryx, really, so that's okay. We'll, we'll let that go. Archaeopteryx. We found about six uh, fossils of Archaeopteryx, and Archaeopteryx is pretty much a claim bird. Uh, birds are birds. Even the world's leading a bird authority says it's a bird. So uh, we don't worry too much about that. It's a, it's a bird. It's only feathers. Only birds have feathers. We've never found. Uh, yeah, I can go on the web and find uh, all kinds of uh, artist drawings, and I see that in books, artist drawings of uh, dinosaurs with feathers. But that's an artist drawing. I want to see the real stuff. Why don't we see the real stuff in the museum? I see archae archaeopteryx, which is a bird. But a lot of small changes. Uh, you ask for proof. Well, you've got the whole thing wrong. It's the evolutionists that are making the claim. They have to provide the proof. Let me read to you two popular geneticists who are both are evolutionists. James Crow, professor of genetics at University of Washington, chair of the Department of Medical Genetics. He says this, the typical mutation is very mild. It usually has no effect, but shows up as a small decrease in viability or fertility. Each mutation leads ultimately to genetic death. Then probably one of the most popular and greatest of the geneticist, considered to be one of the greatest evolutionary geneticists, clearly shows in his diagrams in his work that beneficial mutations are simply not in the selection zone and won't be selected for, that the mutations are going to take us downhill. Population geneticists know this. The biologists don't, don't uh, basically ignore it. So your primary axiom that uh, typographical errors from copying can transform a wagon into a spaceship is simply not true, and it won't happen in life either. Beneficial mutations are so rare, they're typically even not even shown on the grass. So this whole idea of time is your magic wand, you've got to show that uh, 
uh, not me. Uh, you're the one, uh, evolutionists, making the claim. And here's, a, here's something there. Uh, Jerry Bergman studied the topic of beneficial mutations, and what he found is in the literature, all the abstracts, all the literature, he found 453,732 mutation hits. But among those, only 186 used the word beneficial. You know, there's about four in 10,000. And these were beneficial in the narrowest sense. So there's simply not enough known. You have to show me the millions of beneficial mutations that would lead up to this, and we simply can't find those. Okay, so David. Small changes are, can't lead to big ones. Okay, David, you got about at least three to four minutes to respond to him, and then we'll move to our next question. Can you can you okay. show us uh, beneficial mutations? You you heard what he said. Uh, he wants to see the evidence of that. That's your statement. So try to back it up here for us. Thank you. Okay, so. Um, you can go ahead and look up uh, Shuvia Desarte, um, S-H-U-V-U-U-I-A, and then Desarte, D-E-S-E-R-T-I. It is um, a fossilized uh, dinosaur with feathers discovered in uh, China during the 90s. It even tested positive for a bea carotene, which is the main protein in bird feather. Now, that's just uh, going to be the one piece of example I'm going to give for that. Now, you're saying, fine, the burden of truth lies on me because I'm making the counterclaim. Um, you still uh, do not prove with anything other than just sheer logic the existence of God. You don't give very much else, but I'm not going to try to um, argue the existence of God. Now, um, what you said, you mentioned two, uh, two geneticists. Yeah, I, didn't get the, I didn't get their names. You they were well-known geneticists. I would, I would Crow like to have and James Crow and Moto Kimura. Moto Kimura. I've never heard of either of them. Um, they're rather well-known in genetics field. I yeah, am studying genetics. I am. Okay. That's my concentration in school. Okay. I've never heard of either of them. You, you'll have to look them both up. Uh, matter of fact, under Moto Kimura, it says by his name, considered to be one of the greatest evolutionary geneticists. I will look them up, um, but I have, like I said, I've never heard of either one of them, and I've never heard of these claims before. I have heard that um, what you said about uh, beneficial mutations only uh, accounting for 400 and some odd uh, uh, mutations, but you do realize the difference between somebody who has hemophilia and somebody who has perfectly, you know, good blood would be a difference of one base pair, one base pair. That's Probably the uh, the most simple uh, difference that you can that you can find where one base pair changes the whole protein. Now, um, as far as I really can't give you very much evidence for the amount of I have, just mainly because I'm like I said, I'm constricted by time. But I do understand where you're coming from, and I do see uh, I do see that that you are trying to you can take this point that these dinosaurs and birds are not compatible. That um, lizard hips and bird hips, the sauropods and the theropods. This is mainly due to the fact that um, very early biologists who actually named these things um, were just wrong. They, um, like, the, like all taxonomists, really, they really don't know much, very much what they're doing. But then again, I do all have a slight bias with All the literature I read says they came from the lizard hips. Yes, that's because that's a convention that was created back in the 1800s. Mike, still in the modern literature. Mike, can you do me a favor real yes, quick? We have not changed that convention. We've kept that convention because we're not, we're not going to change a whole convention of how we name things just based on the fact that the, the people who originally came up with it were wrong. 
it just creates even more confusion, and it would create a complete amount of disorder in all the literature. There will be clear contradictions in the literature. We keep it the way it is, even though um, Therapoda, which uh, 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 Therapoda, which is the uh, so-called lizard hips, is uh, those are, uh, that's what it means in um, in uh, yeah, that's what it means in uh, in Greek. The lizard hips. These um, these creatures in reality have hips much more similar to the birds than they do to the actual lizards. The only reason that they were said like that is because that's what the early biologists believed, and these early biologists who came up with this didn't even know how to construct the, uh, how to construct skeletons properly. We see, we take a look at the very early fossil findings of iguanodon. Iguanodon is well portrayed as a, as a bipedal creature when, in reality, it would have never been able to support its own weight on two legs, and it actually functions as a as a as a, quad, uh, as a uh, quadruped. Okay, Mike, can you do me a quick favor? Uh, can you write out those two geneticists' names on the computer along with the uh, the doctor or, or the specialist in uh, birds who said that Archaeopteryx is just a bird? So, so can you write out those two geneticists on the computer for us? Because uh, I think people want to see them. You also, okay. you, an atheist at large, can you write this? Uh, and, and just, uh, atheist at large, can you write this down for David? Because he's not at a computer, I guess. Yeah. So, um, Moto Kimura is, is one of the geneticists. How did you get that? Did they both show up or not? Oh, we just got Moto Kimura. That's all we got on the table. Okay, oh, no. No, James Crow is there. James Crow, Moto, Moto mm -hmm. Kimura. And then can we get the name of the one who's, who, who's an expert in birds who said Ar Archaeopteryx is just a bird? Okay. Oh, I don't deny the fact that Archaeopteryx is a bird. Um, Archaeopteryx is a very clear, clear case of a very early bird. It has teeth. It has fingers. It shows a very clear. Uh, it, shows, it actually shows a very interesting hybrid between dinosaur and bird. It is a bird by all kinds of convention, but it actually does show very many lizard-like qualities. You can very clearly on the fossil see the imprints of its fingers. Clearly see in its jaw the imprints of its teeth. Okay, and this was. The two, the two geneticists were for you, David, and then this one was for somebody that wanted to, uh, to see the, uh, the bird guy. Um, okay, I'll have to get his name here somewhere. Okay, if well, if you can just find that. Okay, if you don't have it handy, we'll get it, we'll get it in a minute. Okay, um, we got a bunch of questions here for Mike. No one's really asking David a question, so I'm going to come up with one to pose to David, and then we'll go back to a question that goes for Mike, okay? Uh, David. When you were discussing the age of the Earth, you uh, admitted you didn't know a lot about the carbon-14 or the isotopes, but um, you went on with the, um, the this uh, idea of a meteor hitting the Earth. I was just wondering, this is just a quick question, I want to get to another one, just, but I was just kind of wondering, were you trying to explain how the Earth um, was created by talking about that Mars thing hitting and, and show that it was an old Earth. I kind of got confused on where you went with the old Earth. And uh, let me start. Let me start with this. Did you concede that the Earth could be young, and that carbon fourteen dating can be an imperfect science? Did you concede to that point, or did you just uh, say no? You I did not. What I what I was trying to prove with Mars is that there are other ways of actually dating the, the planet. We can date the planet based on impact structures, based on 
um, geological erosion, based on rock dating, based on a whole bunch of other different criteria. And I was trying to show that uh, something like impact structures, which are very rare here, would have been all wiped clean around the, around the same time as the formation of the moon. And the moon itself shows um, impact structures which date back to the billions of years. And they're very well preserved because the only kind of erosion that goes on on the moon, on, like on Earth, is other comet strikes, other meteor strikes. Okay. So I always have to show that there's more than one way to actually, to actually uh, show that the Earth is very old. Okay, and then um, uh, Mike, can you comment on that? What do you? So he's basically saying he's not going to go with the carbon fourteen thing. He didn't know much about that in isotopes. He that wasn't his specialty, but he went to another form with the uh, the Mars sized rock hitting the Earth, and with the uh, the formation of the Moon. What would you say about that? Does that prove that the uh, the Earth is billions of years old, and, and, and that uh, it is the way he said it is? Is that is that the nail on the coffin, or what do you think about that? Well, all it proves is somebody can make up a story. Was it ever observed? No. Do we see those uh, impacts on the Earth? No. We see one side of the moon that has a large uh, crater impact. The other side is relatively smooth. Uh, we'd have to figure out uh, how do you determine the age of the moon? Well, uh, you'd have to go to radioisotope dating. How accurate is radioisotope dating? Well, it's never really answered the question of uh, the helium. He ignored that one. The helium we find in the granite rocks, uh, which should not be in there. Uh, the only explanation we have come up with so far is there had to be a great uh, accelerated decay rate in the past, so fast that uh, the decay rate happened so fast that the helium didn't have enough time to escape. Then answer the question of the uh, inconsistency we, we find in the uh, radioisotope dating. Uh, you do uh, uranium to lead dating, you'll do potassium to argon, you'll get two completely different dates there. Which one's right? Well, we just arbitrarily choose. Uh, yes, we see consistency in dates in the textbooks, but that's not what really happens in the laboratories. Uh, if you ever get to see that, uh, you may have seen all that, but uh, we really don't get consistent dates. We get what we want, not what really actually comes out. How scientific it is, it's, it's a matter of a presupposition again. You want the Earth to be old, so all your dates will be old. Uh, so it, it turns out to be a problem like that. So I'd like to get an answer why we find so much helium in the granite rocks, specifically in the zircon crystals there. The helium is the, again, you know that's the, uh, one of the lightest, uh, it's like a Teflon of atoms. It doesn't stick to anything. It just migrates right out at a very fast rate. So why is it still in these zircon crystals in the granite? Okay, let so, David answer that. Mount St. Helens, Mount St. Helens rocks were dated at two million years old. It just happened. So we know there's contamination in there. Okay, let's give David that question about the helium. David, why, uh, is, why do we see a problem with helium in the age of the earth? All right. Um, as, far as, as far as I'm concerned, the fact that there's helium actually trapped in rocks just shows that the rocks were trapped really, really deep in uh, in the planet and are just recently coming up. You have to actually have some sort of free main path in order for the helium to escape. If the helium is actually kept deep enough under underground for a long period of time, it will accumulate and it won't and it won't vanish. There are there are pockets of helium, there are pockets of hydrogen on the planet. That's uh, that's beyond a doubt. We have found them. It's the same way as you can keep um, uh, any other gas trapped underground. Um, that's that's just, that's a, that's about all I have to say with helium. I really don't see how helium has anything to do with radioactive dating, because most things that produce uh, that produce helium as a kind of um, as an as an off uh, as an offshoot, it would be uh, produced as a as an alpha particle. So anything that decays, any radioactive uh, isotope that decays and produces alpha particles will be con uh, continuously producing helium. And an alpha particle, by definition, is a helium uh, a helium nucleus. 
Okay, so are you conceding to that point then by saying that you don't see how that's a problem when he's explained it, that it is a problem two different times? Are you conceding to that? I, <clears throat> I No, what I'm saying is I don't see how there's being helium in rocks actually manages to conflict with the fact that the Earth is old. Okay, that's what I'm not could you seeing. explain that to me? I'm saying that there are other explanations as to how helium could have gotten in there. David, would you respond to that? Is, is it true that there are other ways that helium can get trapped in the rocks, or is this the only way? Mike. Is that for me? Or yeah, me? I'm sorry. I meant Mike. Mike, is this the only way, the way you're, pre you're, you're, you're presenting, or is there other ways that helium can get trapped in the rocks? No, we know of no way that helium get trapped in rocks. He did a magic wand effect there again, which ignores the evidence. Uh, he said we're really deep rocks. It's not going to matter how really deep they are. The helium is going to escape out of there. We have no known other explanations. No other evolution has come up with a good explanation yet. So it's a magic wand effect he did there, which is ignoring the evidence, to, and uh, that's a common tactic. We have to examine so the evidence. Gonna... Have, have you actually read gonna... the research on this? Have you read the you research are, on you this? Are, you aren't producing any numbers. You aren't producing anything. You're just, say, you're just stating this. Uh, simply, I, all I'm trying to do is find ways to explain this. Because without having read the research and without having actually seen these numbers, I can't come up with any kind of opinion of my own. I am trying to produce explanations which are somewhat feasible. What I'm, what I'm going to ask you is, do, can you deny the existence of, can you deny what an alpha particle is? Can you deny about the production of alpha particles? And can you simply deny the fact that alpha particles are a rather common uh, byproduct of, uh, in, uh, in most uh, nuclear, uh, nuclear decay? I agree, but it has nothing to do with what we're saying. So you're trying to confuse the issue then. We're talking about... The I'm not trying to confuse the issue. Alpha particles uh, are helium. If there is active decay, if there is any kind of potassium uh, isotopes in there, if there's any kind of... any almost any kind of large atom isotopes, iron, sodium, they will produce alpha particles as part of decay. An alpha particle is a helium atom. Uh, no, see, that has nothing to do with this. The fact is... That How does that have nothing to do with it? You're talking about high concentrations of helium in rocks. I'm right. presenting so these things which are found in rocks, which are radioactive and which are long-time preserved. The isotope um, potassium-40 lasts, uh, has a half-life of one point some odd billion years. It produces an alpha particle on decay. It can be in rocks for ages. Uh, it can continuously releasing helium. From uranium from uranium 238 to lead 206 is a pretty long process. During that process, uh, about five or six helium atoms are produced. The helium atoms should migrate out much faster than that decay down to lead 206. So why is the helium still there? You're going through a lot of technical things, which we all agree on, but why is the helium still in the zircon crystals? It should and not I'm be. And I'm telling you. I'm telling you that there are far more atoms. If you want something with a shorter half-life, take something like sodium. There are several sodium isotopes which have half-lives on the range of 50,000 years. Their production of helium is much, much faster and much greater than, than, uh, than uranium, and it's far more common than uranium in the Earth's core. Potassium, calcium, iron, there are isotopes of all those which produce alpha particles. Uranium is not the only one that produces alpha particles, and uranium is very, very rare. You're missing the point. Here. Decay rate is slow, but the decay rate the decay rate is slow, but the uh, helium release rate out of the rocks will be very fast. There should not be that much helium. That much helium. Are you speaking about? Rocks. Are you speaking about recently exposed rocks? Because the freeing path is going to change quite a bit if you have, if you bury a rock several thousand miles, uh, several thousand meters 
or even a couple of miles underneath the surface. If you bury it even deeper, the free main path uh, will basically become zero to the surface. There's no way for it to escape once it gets deep enough. No, it will still helium. It will not really stick to much of anything. It just migrates. Out it of doesn't the need to stick. It can't time. migrate if there's nowhere for it to go. That's the thing. You need to have pores. And the longer the path, the longer it's going to take to go because it's only going to have a set amount of kinetic energy. This is pretty basic thermodynamics. It, it's basic, but you don't seem to get the point about the helium and how it actually operates. I would suggest you read a book. No, no, about I'm getting the point about, about how helium operates. Oh, hold on, hold on here, uh, David. Well documented research. David, you said in in the discussion that you haven't read the research that David is uh, that Mike is presenting. Mike, why don't we end it now? with you giving him the research, and then that way he can see it in scientific journals. So where should he look for the research of what you're saying? Okay, you can find it on the, there's a book out with all the details. You would, you would love it, it's just up your alley, Radioisotopes in the Age of the Earth. And I believe we probably have some even on our, we may have some on our website. Yeah. I'm sorry, that was not to you. That was to um, people who were waiting on me. Oh, that's okay. Okay. So, Radioisotopes in the Age of the Earth is is so the that's book. That's the book that's out that contains all the detailed descriptions of everything uh, out there. And, who, and who's I that written have, by? Uh, yes. There's, there's a book I uh, have in there called the New Answers Book, and I wrote a whole chapter on carbon-14 dating and radioisotope dating, which specifically talks about the helium problem, not all the other ones. But there are many, many problems we have discovered with the radioisotope dating. Uh, okay, and, and what we're, what they're asking for is they're asking for uh, science science outside of Christian science that would agree with this, or or uh, or people that would have this in scientific journals. Is that is that where they can find it, or is it only in uh, in a Christian? Sure. No, uh, these things these things. Oh, you got to him. Sorry. Yeah, is it is it only Mike in in the Answers in Genesis book by a Christian, or is it also known knowledge by scientists working in their field with? Uh, peer-reviewed uh, journals writing it's, its... Uh, well, we have it peer-reviewed within the uh, creation scientists. The reason it won't be in the uh, other journals is they practice censorship. Uh, do we find their data in our journals? No, so therefore we don't accept theirs. So we can't go by that, whether it's in the peer-reviewed journals of the evolutionists, because they censor it. They won't allow it. Okay, let's so go to... Uh... be very careful in that, but the book is there. You can easily get it. Uh, there's, uh, you can go to our website and find uh, on AnswersInGenesis.org, and you can find look up on the, the Age of the Earth. Uh, I've got a one right here. I'm just looking at. Uh, okay. On the ICR, there's an Institute Creation Research. They have a lot of articles on the uh, radioisotope dating done by well, uh, very good physicists, PhD physicists, and geologists, and nuclear physicists. So we have uh, very credentialed people doing this research. So why is it in the uh, secular journals? Censorship. Okay. So we'll just leave it at that. And here's our last question for the night. Uh, Mike, please explain to us uh, chromosome 2. 
and I have no idea what that is, but that was one of the questions. And I'll, and I'll put it with the other question. It was uh, explain retroviruses was one, and the other was explain chromosome two. And uh, we have no idea what those are, most non-scientific people. So please explain what they are and how they apply to this uh, subject so we can all understand. And then, David, we'll let you end with that, and then we'll all say goodbye and good night. okay? And, but I'll stay on and keep hanging out. Okay, Mike, retroviruses and chromosome two. Okay, uh, well, I'm not sure what he means by chromosome 2. Uh, uh, retrovirus just belongs to a, a particular family. They're, uh, I don't know why I would need to explain them. The whole problem, problem comes back to uh, viruses. Where do they come from in the first place? Uh, uh, I would believe they have to be created. Uh, why the viruses have to be created or they have to be mutations. Uh, I don't see what the question is really about. Why would I need to explain them to me? Uh, Okay. A, um, okay. Here we go. We're I'm getting not sure what the Okay. If you can look at your chat log, you can see that they're kind of blowing it up right here. Uh, they're saying um, basically, yeah, a X Y and Y Y chromosomes define the sex of a human. Fused human chromosome two. They prove evolution. That's why genetic similarities between humans and chimps. Well, he forgets some basic things about similarities between humans and chimps. Uh, Three uh, percent is uh, uh, we're talking about sixty to ninety million differences in there. If he'd really know his genetics, and uh, then again we go back to the mutations uh, and natural selection. When we look at this, uh, the geneticists uh, fully know that almost all known mutations are detrimental or neutral, and the ones that are beneficial are very rare. If anybody look at the actual data on that, they would see that. Um, we can quote over and over again the from the geneticist that small changes will not lead to large changes because, the again, as, as uh, Mr. Rodriguez was kind of alluding to, when you get a point mutation or you get a mutation, selection does not select at the nucleotide level. It will never select for an individual mutation. That's simply not how selection works. Selection always works at the whole group level, at the phenotype level, which is, means if it selects for the, where the, in the area where that beneficial one is, then it's also going to select all the detrimental ones that are in that selection zone. So we end up getting a tremendous genetic load, which is taking us downhill. So the reason people start thinking we can select an individual mutation is because our biology textbook teach it incorrectly. Okay. So we have to get back to, again, good education, teach all the scientific evidence, not censor it and not be afraid of it. Let's teach all the scientific evidence. And I think Mr. Rodriguez hopefully would agree with that. And I hopefully would agree that we don't want uh, religion and the Bible taught in the science classrooms. I think you'd probably agree with that. But hopefully I, would, I think you would agree that we want academic freedom to teach the science, both pro and con against evolution, and let students do some critical thinking. Um, that's, where, that's where I would like to end the thing. Maybe we could agree on something like that. But I uh, certainly wouldn't agree on evolution because I haven't seen, uh, when you look at mutations and natural selection, you look at the origin of matter, you look at the origin of life, it's a, it's a magic wand and it ignores uh, how all these happened. Uh, yes, you come up with uh, explanations, but that's all they are is explanations, but nothing observable. Absolutely nothing observable. You talk about feasibility. Somebody puts in the question chromosome two, but they ignore all the other things. Where did life get started? Uh, let's get back to the basics now. How did life start? If you can't tell me that answer, then you're asking me to accept evolution by faith. I already have a faith. Why should I change my faith for your faith? My faith has answers in Jesus Christ. What does your faith have to offer me? That's what I would say about evolution. Uh, at least I have hope in my faith. Uh, what does evolution have to okay, offer Mike, anybody? Okay, Mike, we just lost everybody, guys. I just locked up. Um, Probably okay. Stink. Yeah, I'll be about fine. midnight anyway here. Yeah, okay. Um, 
Yeah, I totally locked up, and um, we just lost a lot of people. I think I was being put on as the uh, as the the featured one, and we were well over a hundred in the room at that time. And uh, we had we've had over nine hundred hits, guys, almost a thousand since we've started the show. So, David, you guys have done an awesome job. Thank you again, uh, David. Yeah. Thank you. And, uh, and I wish, wish you best in your studies. And, uh, oh, yes. Perhaps we can do this again at some other point. Um, okay, let me just get yeah. you guys to say goodbye to everybody. I'm just going to need a second here just for uh, reloading purposes. I would hate to have it in like that. Uh, so just give me a second, guys. I, I apologize. Stink. I lost everybody. We'll at least just wait for a couple of people to come into the room. It's 11, It's uh, 10.58 here, 11.58, your guys' time. Um, one thing that I just want to go back to with, with that helium thing is that, um, you see, what happened, what I see happening, sorry, guys, we crashed. What, what I see happening is uh, in these discussions, sometimes I see we as, as Christians and evolutionists, we speak past each other, and I want to know why... Why was why is the helium like something like helium, just like only a Christian idea? Like why wouldn't like like I don't think David like I understand Mike. You're saying that David. Uh, I mean, evolutionists may be biased, and uh, things like that happen. But I don't think David is intentionally being biased. Am I right, David? You're not being biased, right? No, I'm, I'm not, not trying well, to be biased. We're both biased. Oh, all right, guys, can I just finish? Because this means make my point here. Because as the host of the show, as the one doing this, this is what I see when I interact with atheists all the time. Guys, as you're coming into the room, I apologize. I crashed. Uh, something happened in my computer. Uh, we are going to let the guys finish up, so it's all going to be gravy. I'm just kind of talking for a second here before I let them finish their point on a chromosome two. Don't worry, guys. We're not forgetting. Um, I sense so many times when the atheist and, and the evolutionist and the Christian get together, like we, we talk about each other in such a way, and we're like, you know, the creationist, he's an idiot. What he's doing is he's trying to make all the evidence turn his way. And I even feel like, Mike, sometimes we say that, and I've heard some of it from, you know, the evolutionist, he's doing this. And I know there's people out there that probably have that agenda, and I know there's creationists that probably have that agenda too, and there's probably atheists or evolutionists that have that agenda. But I, what I try to promote in this room is people to think freely, people to hear just, you know, what's going on with the facts. And so I think David is open to the facts. And I think, Mike, you're open to the facts. Now, we both have strong convictions of where those facts lead, and, and yeah, that may never change in a debate. But here's what I think can change. If a guy like Mike says to a guy like David, here's information on this side of the table that they're not showing you in school, are you willing to look at it? I would like to hear David say, yes, I'm willing to look at it. Then I would like to hear if, if Mike, if David says to Mike, Mike, here's what they're teaching right now. Maybe you haven't researched this yet. But I want you to take a look at it because I feel sometimes we're just speaking past each other. And I've been looking at the, the chat logs, and the biggest accusation I've seen both ways, and there's a lot more atheists that get on the chat debate. We as Christians don't get into the chat debate. Sorry, guys. Savage, I see you're big into that. A lot of us are just not in to the chat debate. A lot of our people are just chilling. 
But this is what I see the atheists saying, and when I talk to Christians afterwards, they say, man, the atheist, he just keeps saying the same things over and over again. He dodges the questions. He's not listening. And then I see, you know, the atheists, they're saying it. Hey, you know what? The Christian's not listening. He doesn't know about chromosome 2. Look how dumb he is. Guys, can we, can we admit when we don't know, and can we learn from each other? See, I'm not afraid of that. See, to me, evolution doesn't disprove my God. To me, in this debate... Personally, this is me personally speaking here. Personally, me in this debate, I haven't seen anything yet to disprove to me the Genesis account. We've seen the age of the earth be the strongest argument, and yet it's still not proven. And even our friend said with carbon-14 and these other things, he still cannot prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt. still assumption. Now, to me, maybe I'm putting words in his mouth, and I'll let him speak in just a minute. But that's where I see it coming from. And so I really feel that, uh, A, this is what I'm saying all this for, A, let's not assume that everybody else is being slanted and everybody else is trying to be uh, 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 censorship. I hope that's not happening here. I hope everybody here is all open to learn. And then number two, let's just be honest to learn, okay? So if... If David, if he's trying to give you information, man, go ahead and research it, man. Dude, what do you have to lose? And and if, uh, Mike, if you don't know about chromosome 2, it's only going to make you better to understand chromosome 2. So we're going to give it back. Well, I got it right here. Okay, so we're going to give it back to Mike. So you guys are saying he doesn't know. I believe he does know. But it, once again, Mike doesn't know everything, okay? So here's Mike on chromosome 2, and then we'll say our goodbyes. Thank you guys for coming back. Sorry about the crash. Here we go. Mike, go ahead. Okay, chromosome 2, it's supposed to be one of the uh, largest human chromosomes, spanning, uh, they say, more than 237 million base pairs. Um, that's an awful lot. But uh, what they say is uh, it corresponds to two of the uh, ape chromosomes. Uh, there again, they're trying to get the uh, familiarity, the closeness of apes to humans. But you know what? There's an awful lot we don't know about that DNA. We have mapped it, the Genome Project, but still there's an awful lot we don't know about the DNA. So to make an assertion that it's an ancestral chromosome is nothing more than an assertion. It cannot be proven. Of course we're going to be close to apes. We're going to be close to a lot of creatures because we eat some of the same foods. We could live in the same environment. If we didn't, we'd be all dead. So it's strictly an assertion there. And, again, the difference between apes and humans, just 3% would be 60 to 90 million differences, let alone now we're up to about 6 or 7%. So the information they have here is, again, just an assertion. And what, again, I'm trying to say here as, as my overall thing is, when we're making an assertion, let's make sure we put in there it's an assertion. Let's get back to academic freedom, teach the science, whether we know it or we don't know it. Let's be honest about that. If we don't know it, let's say so. And rather than teaching evolution as a fact, and it is being taught as a fact in the schools, it, they're, they're not allowing uh, information that goes against evolution in a lot of schools. So I'm just back to academic freedom, and I don't know why anybody would be against that, uh, although some people might be. I know several organizations that are, uh, and I can name them. But chromosome 2, uh, it's just strictly an assertion that it's an ancestral chromosome uh, that, uh, from uh, apes. Uh, we don't know that, and uh, they should put that in there, but uh, they don't again. Okay, go ahead, David. You got it. Um, all right. While I would actually love to say something about um, chromosome 2, I am actually really pressed for time uh, to leave right now. I um, 
need to uh, vacate the room where I'm currently resigning in. So um, can I just make this rather quick and say that it's been great to be here. Um, I am definitely very open to the ideas. I have taken down the names and the uh, books, which he's mentioned, and I do plan on on reading them and looking them up. And perhaps when I'm a little bit wiser, I would like to meet Mike and have another um, more civilized discussion with him, perhaps when we're more on the same page. And um, I'm... It's great, David. Uh, I didn't think you were uncivilized at any point. I've, uh, I thought you did. I, well, well, no, no, I, 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 I wasn't saying that uh, well. I, I wasn't saying that we were um, uncivilized or anything. I, what I was saying is more along the lines having another civilized debate. Yes, I, well, I like to do it just sit down and have fireside chats with people. I think that's great. I do that uh, with engineers that's, and atheists. That'd and be great. Like and, that. and, and Mike, you know, honestly, I would like to. I would like to stay in a in contact with you, perhaps share ideas and have a uh, perhaps a more private discussion where we can do it more at leisure and just kind of, you know, present our ideas to each other and recommend uh, readings and whatnot. Wonderful. And, uh, we can grow stronger that way. Wonderful. And you guys can take each other out for coffee and come up with little nicknames and uh, have each other write your names on each other's sneakers. <laughs> yeah, I don't like to go that far with that. Uh... <laughs> I love you guys. Man, thanks for coming, uh, David. We'll get some feedback from you, man. Thanks for your time. I do want to hear feedback from you, so I'll call uh, you. If I have permission, can I call uh, you? Yes, can I? Do I have permission? Do I have permission okay. to call you at the, Okay, I'll let you finish. <laughs> do I have permission to call you at this number tomorrow to get feedback? Yes, you do. Okay. Then have a wonderful evening, okay. David. Thank you for your time. All right. Thank, Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Awesome.